What's up guys and welcome back to the show. Before we get started, I'd just like to express my thanks and gratitude to the sponsors which support this podcast. I'm very selective with regards to the brands I work with and will only ever work with those which I would use myself. River and CoinKite are two such stellar Bitcoin only brands. If you already know about how they can help you to grow and secure your Bitcoin wealth respectively, skip ahead 70 seconds. If not, keep listening. CoinKite, first and foremost, makes products that help you take secure self-custody of your Bitcoin. Their flagship product, the Cold Card Hardware Wallet, has been a favorite of many Bitcoiners for many years. Reservations are also now open for the Cold Card Q1, which takes all the awesome features of the MK4 and adds a full QWERTY keyboard, QR code scanner, large LCD screen, battery power, and a ton more. If you've been waiting to get your Bitcoin off exchanges or are looking to migrate to a multi-sig solution, CoinKite has you covered. Beyond that, there's a ton of other goodies available at their store for using, gifting, and generally adorning your home or office with more awesome Bitcoin stuff. My personal favorite being the Block Clock series. Check it all out at CoinKite.com. River is the place to build your Bitcoin wealth in the U.S., you can take the emotion out of Bitcoin accumulation by setting up a regular dollar cost average purchase with zero fees. You can buy lump sums and you can even buy your own mining rigs and have them take care of all the hassles as you watch the sat stream in. For the developers and entrepreneurs out there, be sure to check out Rivers Lightning service, which allows for lightning payments to be built into applications without having to run any lightning infrastructure yourself. River has a brilliant, principled and committed team which has truly built a best-in-class solution for growing and managing your Bitcoin wealth. Learn more about them at river.com today. Let's do it. Michael, thank you for joining me today. I um, have been familiarizing myself with a bunch of your work over the last few weeks, and there's a lot of it, so I don't know if we'll have time to discuss everything today, but um, I appreciate you making the time, and I'm looking forward to this discussion. Thank you for having me. Perhaps uh, before we get going on, you know, some of the many topics we can explore, uh, maybe a brief introduction by you to, you know, people who may not know who you are. Sure. So my name is Michael Millerman. I run MillermanSchool.com, an online school of political philosophy, usually for adults or professionals who are looking to reconnect with an interest in philosophy who want to go deeper into understanding politics. Uh, I graduated from the University of Toronto with a PhD in political science where I studied, you know, the topics that I now write about and teach. In particular, a question that's always interested me is the relationship between how we think about politics and how we think about metaphysics, ontology, first philosophy, and sort of more abstract topics like that. Uh, that's pretty much it. I mean, I've been in the academic mindset for most of my life going through the degree program, but because I translated a uh, controversial Russian political theorist named Alexander Dugin, who's regarded as I mean, he had been called Putin's brain in 2014. There was some controversy and scandal surrounding that, which is why I left academia and went on my own independent entrepreneurial path as an online instructor. Oh, really? I, I, I knew you had written that book and I knew that to some degree he was controversial. I don't know too much about Duke and I, I've seen some of your interviews with him and he seems like a fairly sensible person to me. Um, I didn't realize that there was a bunch of controversy around your writing about him. Yeah, there is. It's complicated because depending on where you start with him or what you read first and sort of which road you pursue, it can seem sensible, it can seem senseless, or it can seem harmful, dangerous, and crazy. And so different people take different paths as they go through his work. But because I was one of the first people to bring him into English through my translations, and because he was a really hot topic in 2014 and again now 
because of the hostilities between Russia and Ukraine. And for other reasons, maybe I think having to do with the ideological atmosphere of university campuses today, all of that just became too much to handle at some point, and it affected my uh, academic prospects, even though it wasn't the only thing I was working on, and it had nothing to do with the quality of my work. But yeah, he's definitely considered a controversial figure. He's been called the most dangerous philosopher in the world, and uh, there's a lot of scandal around him. You know, I'm sure this isn't lost on you as someone who thinks thinks deeply about these things, but isn't it funny that the very institutions that are looking out at perhaps people like Dugan and saying, wow, those, you know, those ideas are dangerous and they lead to, you know, dangerous things. And they look back on the past and look at examples of dangerous things like authoritarian governments and censorship of various kinds and, you know, exiling political opponents and all that stuff that we associate with authoritarianism and tyranny generally. That's the very mechanism they're they're using to respond to ideas that are counter to to their ideologies or perhaps make them uncomfortable. I mean, we live in such an upside down world where, you know, the the everything seems to be the inverse. You know, a lot of people call it clown world, but it's you're being censored and deplatformed by people for ostensibly covering someone who is a threat to such behaviors theoretically, you know, and they're actually acting them out in practice. It's, I mean, what do you make of that kind of inversion of, of logic sense, how things yeah, are working so today? It's, uh, it was amazing to experience firsthand because I did have kind of a starry eyed view of academia as, you know, especially some of the professors I had difficulties with publicly present themselves as all in on the serious study of alternatives, you know, but then they caved like a spineless sort of, uh, creatures when faced with an actual alternative. So mm -hmm. it is kind of complicated because on one hand, let me give credit where it's due in the following way. University instructors, especially in political science, I would say they may feel like they have some sort of ethical or moral responsibility, not just to present students with all the relevant information, but in some sense to shape them, to guide them. In other words, they see themselves in a quasi activist or sometimes straightforwardly activistic role as civic educators. There's a long history to that. It's reflected in Plato's Republic, the basic concern with civic education. And so there's some legitimacy to it. But on the other hand, they do act like in total oblivion of the contradictions of their own actions. Mm. So they have a sense of a moral superiority and a kind of civic obligation, but they don't see when they start to have a mirror image or like you said, an inverse uh, sort of dark mirror reflection of the very forces that they pretend to be against. And that's where it gets, I think, on one hand, it can be funny, depending on how you look at it, because it's like people who are saying one thing and doing the exact opposite or behaving in exactly the way that they tell you not to. But it's pretty dangerous and disconcerting, too. I'll tell you, I think maybe the classic example for me that wasn't affecting me personally, but that I saw when I was a teaching assistant at the University of Toronto. So keep in mind, those listeners who don't know, University of Toronto is a good Canadian school. It's pretty much the best school in Canada, let's say, and it's really educating in principle tomorrow's leaders in some capacity. So I was TAing a political science class, and I had asked a kind of controversial question, but I set it up to make it interesting, okay, as much as I possibly could, and nobody answered the question at first. So I was like, guys, I did my best to make this fascinating. You know, I tried really hard to set it up in an interesting way. I'm teaching another class after yours. Can you guys just tell me, you know, why didn't this connect? Like, you know, why hasn't anybody said anything? One person put up her hand and she said, the question's actually truly interesting. 
this had to do with, you know, can you identify, you know, there's the gender identity question, but then what if I identify as five years old? What if I identify as Chinese and so on? Mm -hmm. So she said, the question is actually very interesting. And I had an opinion on it. But the reason I didn't raise my hand is because I don't want there to be like the social blowback of voicing a controversial opinion. And then I said to the class, keep in mind, this is tomorrow's leaders, okay? At Canada's best university in a political science class. In I what asked year? the class, uh, this was, it was probably first year. So they're on their way through no, political I mean, what science year, like, training. Oh, like, this was 2000, probably, probably 2017 or 18, okay? Because okay. I've been out of university since then. So then I asked a follow-up question. I said, who else feels this way? Like you wanted to answer, you wanted to discuss, but for fear of social ostracism and blowback, you didn't put up your hand. Everybody raised their hand. Everybody. That means every student in the class wanted to discuss the question, had something to say about it, and didn't speak because they were scared of the consequences. So you cannot have that environment at a university campus in a political science department, training tomorrow's leaders at the top university. That's just catastrophic. So that tells you something, you know, it's not just Michael Millerman worked on Alexander Dugan. That's one thing. A class full of first year students, deathly scared to talk about something because they know they'll get, they'll lose their heads for it. That's, that's totally, totally unacceptable. That's where things are now. In fact, they're probably even worse now. Oh, yeah. You know, there's two interesting points about that. One is that if everyone actually did put up their hand for the very same reason, then it's almost like it's more of a, a spirit of the censorship rather, you know, a an irrational fear, let's say, because if everyone wanted to engage in it, and presumably they were afraid of the direct immediate ostracization from people that were in the class, not like hearing about it later, that was largely an illusion because there, what, there wouldn't have been that much pushback in the class in the moment. Maybe afterwards yeah, there might've been. I you know, I think it's a combination. On one hand, they may be worried about what the other people there will say. But I do also think it's an ingrained habit of self-censorship now, you know, because it's not just that you're worried what your classmate will say. You're worried that your professor will mark you for the wrong, you know, not for bad work, but for politically incorrect opinion and so on. So I think it's the more deeply ingrained uh, spirit of self-censorship, not just out of the fear of the classmates. I mean, we could imagine a different scenario where since everybody recognized that they wanted to talk, we could have had a conversation, but it's that the students now recognize, keep your mouth shut if you want to move through the institution. Because as soon as you start to think out loud, you know, it could be dangerous for you. And that's not a good environment. And the institutions, unfortunately, are apparently increasingly fostering that kind of environment. So that's a problem. Yeah. I mean, I find that attitude and that fear so repulsive, you know, and because the, the, the universities are supposed to be the battleground of ideas, right? You know, this is where you go to really hash it out. Like you're on that side, I'm on this side there, you know, we both have issues with each other's opinion. Like let's, this is the place where the pros come to sort out these things. Or at least that was the, you know, the promise at some point and maybe the practice at some point, but seems no longer to be the case. And I want to go back to that kind of civic element of education in a moment, but this is not a, a problem exclusive to academia, right? And let's keep using that word spirit. Like spirit is, is type is like a, an animating motivation that, that can emerge across various places, people, substrates, you know, it's like, it's an animating motivation of some kind. And so we see this in act and let's say this is kind of the spirit of self-censorship. 
um, we see it in academia. We saw it in with a lot of medical professionals during the COVID years. We see it a ton in mainstream media. We see it at the family dinner table, like everywhere these days. And I'm I'm curious what you think is the nature of that animating spirit of self-censorship. Is it like, why has that become such a dominant or dominating spirit in the world today that it has such an effect on people that they needn't even be directly threatened not to express an opinion? Although there's obviously some indirect threat in terms of your livelihood and your job and that kind of stuff. But like, it's, it's so top of mind. It's so prevalent in decision-making that you see it everywhere and it's, it happens automatically. It doesn't need to be, you know, directly um, instilled in someone. So I'm, I'm curious where, where you think that comes from and what's the nature or character of that spirit? In a general way, I've tended to think about it as a post-World War II, you know, a function of the end of the Second World War, where it's like everything is potentially uh, moving you in the direction of uh, the worst nightmares of 20th century political history as soon as you start to slip in that direction. So the constant fear that you're going to be a stone's throw from fascism, from Nazism, from genocide, you know, the moment you make any sort of distinction, it's interpreted as discrimination. Now, everybody knows, on the other hand, that there are still a lot of separations being made. In the COVID years, it was between the vaxxed and the unvaxxed or the masked and the unmasked. So how do you combine these two things? On one hand, a fear of establishing new categories of discrimination because of the political history of the 20th century. And on the other hand, the obvious fact that we have many uh, categories of discrimination going in the opposite direction. I think there it's that the people and the ideas and the classes and the values that have typically been seen as the underdogs, the marginalized or the oppressed are now, you know, in a process of <laughs> restoring balance, uh, taking the lead in these new acts of discrimination. So everything's been flipped on its head in this sense. But there's always, you know, in the broad history of political philosophy, if you go back, as I say, to Plato, so before Christ, okay, we're talking about a long time ago and a long political history, long history of thought, there has always been a place for political censorship and a place for self-censorship. I recently read on my YouTube channel an article, incidentally by Dugan, on the censor, on different ways of interpreting acts of censorship. One way is like a sculptor building a statue out of marbles, removing, removing and leaving you with a shape, a form, an image, or something that encapsulates the spirit of a place, the spirit of a people, the spirit of a time. So on one hand, censorship is always present, but what gives it its distinct character is what it excludes and why, you know? So there are things that out of decency, I wouldn't say at the kitchen table, not because I'm afraid of being punished for it, but because it's inappropriate to say as recognized as inappropriate. And you'd be, you know, somehow like a social buffoon if you didn't recognize those basic rules of decency. So I think the, the you have a combination of all of these things, the ever present fact of censorship and self-censorship in human society, but filled in with a new content that has been designed to rectify the imbalances, social and political, so perceived, of the, you know, on one hand, avoiding the 20th century, and on the other hand, a chance for the previously marginalized underdogs and so on to take control. And, power. and then you have the typical temptations of power, which is its own phenomenon, no less important and maybe more important than these other ones. People who are at the top of the power chain, 
if they can exert some sort of control to stay there, to manipulate the people who are below them, to ensure that, you know, the throne will remain occupied by uh, one's own self, you know, then they'll go, they'll go to very, they'll go to very great lengths to preserve positions of power. So you put all of that together and that begins to explain some of it. I don't say it's yeah. the last word. It's a complicated issue, but that's kind of how I would start to think about it. Yeah. And I mean, the, the imperfections or trauma or within each of us, you know, that, that yearning for power and influence and notoriety is, is almost ever present. And perhaps it's more present in the people that end up ascending those institutions. And then you get the effects of them being at the helm of them downstream. And, you know, so I definitely think that, that contributes, you know, your, your comments about, um, saying something inappropriate at the dinner table is interesting. You know, I, I don't know too much about Diogenes either, but I know the, the kind of gist was like, would you rather appear virtuous and, and not be, or appear, you know, crude and, but be virtuous, you know, would you rather say the kind of uncomfortable, uh, you know, blunt, frank truth, even though it's disruptive to whatever circumstance you might be in, or would you rather not and in kind of keep the peace as it were? And, you know, that's interesting because it makes me think so, so much in the world today, and this is, you know, talked about a lot, there's so much virtue signaling. And I think part of the censorship that we, this problem of censorship we're discussing, so much of the pushback, so much the, of the, the censorious animus is virtue signaling like these people that you know screech and yell you know racist transphobe this that and the other thing i feel like an element of that within them notwithstanding their own you know all the different imperfections that they have and ego and unrestrained all this stuff but part of it is they think they're being virtuous and they're they're attempting to signal that in the world by condemning someone they deem to be not virtuous and so there's this interesting phenomenon where uh, the virtue signal, the expression of something is seen as being more virtuous than the actual embodiment or action of it. And, you know, you, it kind of, you know, it's not a perfect corollary to someone like Diogenes. Perhaps he was kind of on the extreme in his example, but I think that's part of that was his philosophical uh, approach is to, you know, to animate the extremes, let's say. But what what do you make of that circumstance, the virtue signaling, and how that contributes to the environment of self-censorship and censorship in the world today. Yeah, virtue signaling is a big part of it. It's a big phenomenon. It's sure tied up with narcissism and all kinds of other things uh, psychologically. But, you know, from the history of political philosophy, one of the points that I find interesting is the debate over virtue. What actually would it mean to be virtuous? What is the right? So let's say fine, they have the virtue signaling and makes them feel better. They're able to call somebody else a racist means they're pure. They're able to call someone else a fascist means they're on the side of humanity. Right. Like Carl Schmidt, who himself is not blameless, once said, whoever invokes humanity cheats, because in fact, all of these political disputes have arguments. Let's say uh, it's when you invoke humanity on your side, you're dehumanizing your political enemies, which is a much more radical form of division than if you actually treat your enemy as a human being that you disagree with. So mm -hmm. there are all of these kinds of issues. But one of the key questions is, what would they mean by virtue anyways? You know, like what would be the virtue of not discriminating egalitarianism, let's say redistribution of resources and all the other things that they think are good, right? Or moral. So even behind the phenomenon of virtue signaling with all of its psychology, psychological elements and so on is the actual real substantive dispute. What's right? What's good? 
what's just, how should we live, how should we treat other people, what's the nature of a political community, can there be one society in which all people live together, why were there ever arguments in favor of distinct social and political orders, you know, what's the nature of legislation, and so on, so I think that is, you know, if we were to scratch beneath the surface of the virtue signaling, which on its surface can be ridiculous and obviously blamable, and again, sometimes comical and grotesque all at once, right? Has this mm-hmm. sort of carnivalesque up to the point that it starts being like menacing and all of that. The, the substantive questions are where the action's at in some sense, right? What should be our proper attitude and why towards these social and political questions? And that's where personally, I find the history of political philosophy to be an indispensable aid to thinking. It's not that we get the final answer necessarily in one book or another, but you can start to formulate these deeper problems and issues. Uh, One of the issues that I have with virtue signalers, especially when they become rapid, is that they're closed off to that element of the problem. In other words, it's not a question for them. What's right, what's wrong, what's good, what's just, and why. It's an obsessive dogmatic conviction that gets translated in this distorted way into all kinds of, um, you know, crazy actions. So, well, that's kind of closed off to the inquiry, but the inquiry is the saving grace because that's when you actually can start to think and to expand and to understand, uh, especially to understand that we don't know what we think we know. Right, exactly, and that's that's the irony. That's the inversion that we were talking about before, because you know, and and it's gotten so it's devolved so much that it's it's actual instantiation in the world today as we see from innumerable new uh, twitter feed videos is literal screeching you know like some you know some student will stand up in in the class or some person will be on the road and they'll be ostensibly representing whatever their cause is and their chosen form of expression will just be screeching at whoever they're in opposition of someone might might put a mic in their face and say hey you know why don't we talk about this issue why don't we try to find that you know, a moral nexus, if you will, or why don't we try to find the truth, broadly speaking, about this issue and, you know, all the different complexities of it. And the response is just actual sheer shrieking, you know, so as to completely shut down any potential for discourse and obviously simultaneously to discredit and in a sense dehumanize the very the person who's asking the questions and who's wanting to engage in that discourse. Right. Yeah. It's amazing in so many ways because, you know, the human being is characterized first and foremost by our ability to speak rationally, you know, that we're the rational animal, we're the speaking being. And so when people screech, they simultaneously dehumanize themselves, you know, because to be human is to be able to engage in this serious analysis. But on the other hand, um, to go back, I hope people don't mind and you don't mind, but to go back to Plato's Republic for a minute on the first two pages, okay, of Plato's Republic, there's a situation where Socrates is stopped by some people. And he's asked to enter into a conversation that he would prefer not to enter into. And they have an exchange. And he says, um, you know, maybe I can persuade you. And they say, you can't persuade us if we don't listen. So the problem inherent in political conversation, that yeah, we have reason, we have the ability to exchange arguments, but it's all premised on the possibility that somebody is open to persuasion. And on the other hand, you have those who would prefer compulsion. So the conflict between persuasion and compulsion is on the first few pages of the main text in the history of Western political philosophy, Plato's Republic. And it just goes to show we cannot take for granted anybody's willingness to engage in a normal exchange of opinions, arguments, ideas, justifications, and so on, because there's always the threat not only of screeching, fine, today it's screeching, 
tomorrow it's shooting. And in both cases, it's the possibility of shutting down decent human society through acts of compulsion. And screaming into a microphone is one way. But the blame goes up the chain because any student who's screaming into a microphone at a gathering, at, let's say at a university, which happens at universities, I know you have maybe other examples in mind as well, where you know it could be a speaker in a parliament or something like that. But take the university. It should be a no-brainer that that student is expelled on the spot. You know, first of all, they probably should never have been admitted. But if they're admitted and they act like animals, then they belong in a zoo, not in a university, and they should be expelled. But when there's nobody enforcing a modicum of institutional standards, then you have the lunatics running the asylum. And if you have a student screaming into a microphone while a professor is giving a speech, you don't have a better example of lunatics running the asylum. And as when the president of the university or whoever is responsible for these things doesn't take any action because he or she knows that they'll get the blowback too, right? Oh, you can't, you can't punish a student for acting like an animal. So this is all backwards. I mean, it's just backwards. Every <laughs> all the way up the chain is backwards. Uh, but that's the way things are going. Weirdly. Well, that's why it's so interesting to explore like what that spirit is, because as you say, it's not just like, you know, the cabal at the top, or at least of, of the particular institution that is the university, like wanting this circumstance and this division. I mean, like everyone up the chain is afraid of the blowback, as you say. And so like, sure, like the, the, the dean might say, this is clearly outrageous behavior for a university, you're expelled and, and anyone else who engages in it, in that behavior will be as well. But then they know, like, you know, the local newspaper and press or whatever will be on them. And then the 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 governing body of their institution or the board or whomever will will blow back against them. And they all do it because they're afraid of the blowback. And like, what's the top of the hierarchy of the blowback? Like, where is the person not afraid of the blowback because they're impervious to it? Like, where's the power from where where is the, yeah. the force of the blowback <laughs> coming from? Yeah, so it's a, it's a very important and interesting question, especially because it seems like in all of these different cases, the buck stops nowhere. Right. It just there's, right. there's no source of responsibility. There's a, a, there's a spirit, as you say, or a power emanating from some uh, amorphous source and from some impersonal and non-identifiable source. So one of the things that I found helpful in some of the analysis of these types of situations is, okay, we can say the spirit of our times is a certain kind of post-modernity. And in post-modernity, you have a rejection or inversion or, or displacement, however you want to see it, of the categories of modernity. One of the categories of modernity was rationality, clarity, enlightenment, understanding, you know, reason as opposed to uh, irrationality, science as opposed to myth, and so on, and a kind of universal standard of enlightenment. Now, I'm not saying that modernity was right in this respect in all cases, and I'm also not saying it's the only thing about modernity. But postmodernity looks at that and starts to split it apart, to tear it apart. So you no longer are interested in the individual. You're interested in the um, multiple schizophrenic self, the individual, not the individual. The, you know, these are some of ideas from Dugan, for example. Uh, no longer rationality, but and new forms of insanity are embraced as good, you know, so all of the typical standards, everything that people are quote unquote used to, you know, the, the ideals of modernity are shattered and inverted and demonized by a new spirit of confusion, of perversion, and of somehow 
multiplication. So one of the things of one of the things about modernity is the idea of a unity. Like I think uh, Peter Thiel has this line, right? That what's the strict opposite of diversity? University. So the, even this conflict between a commitment to everybody's ideas goes, you know, every approach to everything goes. Screaming into a microphone is as legitimate as lecturing after a forty-year, you know. That the unit, the idea of a university, because the idea of a certain kind of unity of the sciences, a unity of knowledge, or even of the hierarchy of the sciences and hierarchy of knowledge, all of this is getting undone and unraveled. And the postmodern spirit, some people embrace it in an act of liberation. You know, it has liberated us from the oppressive structures of modernity. And in some sense, it has, you know, but if I, if I go into the kitchen, if I liberate my own rules and I go into the kitchen and I start throwing food all over the wall and, you know, acting like, okay, that's also limits give shape and definition and structure and beauty to something. So you don't want to be liberated from everything, but the postmodern spirit has something like that in it, that we're now going to overthrow. There's a version of this argument that I like, which was modernity tried to overthrow to a certain extent, external authorities, the authority of the church, for example, in order to invest the individual with all of these rights. Then eventually, this desire for liberation turns within. And you say, you used to think that man is hierarchical within himself, that reason and order and intellect are higher than, you know, disorder, uh, emotion, let's say, and instinct. Well, that new hierarchy is as oppressive as any external hierarchy. So postmodernity attacks the very legitimacy of reason, of order, of science, of knowledge, and so on. And I think in doing so, it brings some useful and interesting things to the surface. But at the same time, it brings all kinds of nightmare scenarios to the surface. And so that leaves us with the task of trying to figure out, first of all, can we sort out everything that's been brought to the surface? And is there any hope for a countervailing spirit? Because, you know, if we're totally dominated by a certain kind of disorderly postmodernity, by the postmodernity of the clown world, um, is it an inevitability? Is there any way to say no to it? Can it be reversed? Can it be replaced? What would that take? And especially what would that take if the source of the spirit is not one person and his decision, but this kind of weird amorphous uh, emanation from God knows where. Mm -hmm. So that's a bit of a challenge and a bit of a puzzle to try to think through for sure. Uh, some of the people that I work on, for sure, the people I teach in my school, the people I read and I'm interested in and post about on Twitter, they all try to analyze this each in their own way, whether from the history of philosophy or from the history of political philosophy, and some of them advance an alternative. So one of the things that Dugan does, he analyzes postmodernity and he tries to advance an alternative. Uh, other thinkers do each in their own way. Leo Strauss, a person who's extremely important to me, constantly telling us, a return to rationality, to reason, to moderation, to sensibility, means you must reread the old books of our history, Plato and Aristotle first and foremost. Uh, Dugan has different approach. So everybody's dealing with this problem in some way, but that's when you think about the spirit of the times, I mean, depending like the more religious people see it as a spirit of, um, the prince of this world or a kind of satanic spirit, you know, secular people may see it as just kind of weird historical aberration. Uh, our task is to try to figure out the best way to understand it. What's good and bad in it. Cause there may be something good in it. Nobody says modernity was perfect. And then also, what can you do about it? Is there anything to oppose to it? I want to say one more thing. I know I've been talking for a long time, but just one thing quickly is that there are some groups who are opposed, let's say, to postmodernity. They're opposed to the crazy scenario that we find ourselves in. And their solution, roughly speaking, is, 
let's roll back the clock to about 1990, 1980, a kind of free market liberalism. And we'll just pretend that this never happened or, you know, that this whole mistake, we just take one step back basically and, and freeze ourselves in 1980s, 1990s classical liberalism. I'm not saying that's not a solution, but I am saying that we need to understand the various, like some people want to roll back the clock to 1980, some to 1950, and some to, you know, 500 BC. So mm -hmm. all of, and some people would say, no, the solution is to keep going. Roll, don't roll the clock back, roll it forward to the decay of the postmodern world and to the one that's going to rise from its ashes. So it's like, okay, now we have, now we have something to look at and something to work through. Yeah. I, so a few things on that, just on the last point, I think as tempting as that is, you know, when things degrade, you know, even, even now we might say, oh, it'd be great to go back 10 years ago and just, you know, take a little bit of a different course, zig when we should have zagged. Um, the circumstance is just always changing. The technological circumstance, the environmental circumstance, you know, you never step in the same river twice, as they say, right? And so I don't think we can, it's useful to draw wisdom and learn from examples of the past, but we have to try to apply them to a novel circumstance because that's the one that we're confronted with. So it really is kind of a tricky thing to say, okay, clearly we've gone off course and our notions of progress have probably been poorly capitulated and they need to be recapitulated. However, we can't just insert something from the past because one, our understanding of it is incomplete for sure. I mean, it's very difficult to analyze the past. We may look at, you know, the classical Greek period as, you know, uh, we may romanticize it greatly. And it was most likely very imperfect and had many of its own problems. And we're, we're, we probably tend to, to use rose-colored glasses when we look at it. And so that process of, of trying to take what was useful and apply it to the current circumstance in the best way possible is, you know, as you said a few moments ago, it's kind of like the process that you'll forever be engaged in because it it, it will always need to be both recapitulated and, you know, kind of vigilantly stewarded in the face of ever-changing circumstances. So you never get to kind of sit back and be like, oh, sweet, we're done, you know, because novelty continues to emerge. The other thing, you know, you mentioned this idea of freedom and liberation that seems to pervade the modern consciousness. It is something that needs to be discussed uh, greatly because the, the kind of on the surface notion is like, well, I can do whatever I want. But as you say, just pure abject freedom doesn't produce desirable results. Like, you, you know, you take a piano, right? If you just bang on the keys as freely as you want, you don't hear music, you hear chaos. So, but if you learn how to play the piano, if you learn how to read music slowly over time, you're able to combine your creative freedom with the limitations of the instrument to, to create something that's, that's pleasant, that's joyful, that's amazing. And I think, you know, that's kind of a fractal reflection of how reality works generally. You know, we, the modern notion of freedom is, again, largely, I think, do whatever you want. The religious notion of freedom, as far as I can tell, or the theological one, is like cleaving to God, you know, a binding liberation. You know, and in, in the modern, you know, language, you know, a, a bunch of people uh, play with this notion of discipline equals freedom. And we all know that in our in our daily lives, right? Like if we get our work done and if we get our exercise done and if we stay on our diet and if we keep up good relationships, then the the psychological freedom that that permits in our life so that we don't have to worry about all those things so that we don't think our life is spiraling out of control, the freedom that that discipline provides to us 
feels good. It feels joyful and it allows us to be made available psychologically and physically in terms of our schedule to things that we deem of greater and greater and greater value, at least in the ideal. And so this notion that, that freedom is, well, we have to, we, we have to spend more time on this notion of freedom because it seems clear in the modern era that it's been taken to its extreme or it, it hasn't been approached with the, the, the requisite nuance. But the other, um, you know, back to the kind of what's the spirit that's causing all this blowback absent like uh, someone initiating it. Um, and you might just call it the spirit of chaos. And I'd like to get your notion or your, your thoughts on this, because it seems to me, especially over the last couple of years, that there's a, you know, there's a lot of people revisiting religion revisiting theology and looking back and and it's starting to make a lot of sense. Now, on, on the one hand, that makes perfect sense to me, because if you're looking out on the world and you see chaos, clown world, inversion of everything, there's this, I think we have this natural impulse to revert to what has worked in the past, like we were just discussing. So, okay, like the notions of gender and family and politics and everything is just way off course. Let's, let's, you know, uh, revert, let's revert back to what we know works in the past because it's, you know, it's very Lindy. There's several thousand years of these structures working and in the face of chaos, that's the most sensible thing to do. Um, so there's that, I can see it for that reason. The other one is because we're in this relativistic world that we were describing, which is, you know, maybe another way of describing the spirit of chaos. It's like, well, where can you find truth? Where can you find a North star? Where can you find a foundation upon which to build all the other structures that end up forming an integrated person and family and society and nation and things like that. And if you don't have that flag, you know, that, that, that totem, perhaps you're the, this kind of relativistic chaotic scenario where the manifestations of which are some of the things we've been describing already is inevitable. Maybe you need that, just that absolute right in the center of things. And perhaps that's why the notion of God has been so sticky in the, in human consciousness. And perhaps that's why, and again, I'm, I'm not a, a Nietzsche scholar or anything like that, but, but perhaps the proclamation of the, you know, the death of God uh, is so relevant because even though it seems like in the modern era, people presume to be extremely progressive. And part of the reason for that, and, and, and that's a beneficial thing. And part of the reason for that is we've shrugged off the yoke of the religious mindset, let's say, but perhaps that's not the case at all. Perhaps that's another example of the inversion that we've been talking about where maybe that shouldn't have been shrugged off. Now, maybe elements of it should have been, but the notion that one needs an absolute North star center authority, whatever you want to call it, you know, foundation of all things in order to foster integrity all the way up or down the chain to avoid the, the chaos of relativism, perhaps that's necessary. And so I'm wondering for you, have you noticed this kind of uh, return to religion or at least interest in theology? And uh, if so, you know, what do you make of, you know, the kind of uh, argument I've just outlined? Yeah, so there's a lot to what you said that is deeply important. It would take some time to discuss. So first of all, definitely people who have come to study with me at my school and who talk to me, have been drawn towards or either uh, they've either been drawn towards or they've already found themselves back in a religious tradition, some Islamic, some Jewish, 
some Christian, some trying to understand a mystical dimension to existence, everybody sensing that they'd been cheated or deprived of this crucial pillar of human life. Um, in some cases, they pass through, let's say, New Age type beliefs on their way back to a traditional religion. In other cases, they, they rediscover the wisdom of the old books and the, as it were, the silver thread of their own heritage in some cases, you know, where they have left the path, left the ancestral path, and then returned to it, something along those lines. So more generally, in the authors that I teach, everybody is keenly aware of this issue and this problem. So part of what characterizes modernity is a desacralization, is a secularization, is a loss of the legitimacy of religion. Because one of the key arguments, this was very early when I started reading uh, the authors that I love now, one of them had said, the Enlightenment thinkers, they, quote unquote, refuted the pre-modern medieval religious thinkers, not at the level of genuine argumentation, but in a sort of propaganda war against faith. Right. So modernity was a kind of successful propaganda war against revealed religion, against theology, and against belief. And what that means in some sense is that when you become wise to it, you suddenly can consider that that was only a propaganda war. It wasn't a refutation. It wasn't the last word. It's not the truth about God, that God is dead. It's either a characteristic, it's either a statement about the social character of the time, or it's a kind of project, but it need not be the truth, uh, the truth of the matter. So on the other hand, so on one hand, you have an interest in religion, mysticism, pre-modern pre thought, medieval philosophy in some cases, uh, return to the roots and all of that. But, but on the other hand, there is a kind of problem or crisis of legitimacy of absolutes. And people are equally aware of that, that it's not, you know, on one hand, if you just return to a religious path or to a traditional faith or to, you know, like I say, an ancestral custom or something, still some people preserve an awareness of all of the criticisms against it that were made, you know? So I'd take it just a very simple type of example. Can I treat the Bible as the word of God once I'm aware roughly of modern biblical criticism? So suddenly you have problems. I'm not saying that you can't. You know, this is an art, this is an issue that Leo Strauss, for example, wrote about uh, in depth. But the, it's that sort of um, the problem of the criticism of the absolute and its loss of legitimacy remains as a sort of thorn, possibly in the side of the people who want to return to a source of absolute authority or of absolute guidance or something that they can. So there's a, still a split consciousness, so to speak. You mm -hmm. know, there definitely is a hunger for a something that anchors you in this world. And, you know, Heidegger writing about Nietzsche had said that it's precisely homelessness that characterizes the modern world. People don't have an anchor. They don't have a rootedness. And on the other hand, people who feel that are looking for substitutes or they're looking for the real thing. But in a time where all foundations seem to have experienced the crisis of legitimacy, it produces this kind of thorn in the side split consciousness. Um, but yes, definitely among my students, definitely the authors that I teach, um, everybody's thinking through this. You know, the crisis of modernity, one of the ways that it has been formulated is that the crisis of modernity was that the, the Western world lost faith in its purpose. It lost the sense of its direction. 
it was no longer related to its two roots, the Bible on one hand, Greek philosophy on the other hand, one way of seeing it. And all of this leaves people, yeah, anchorless, uprooted, homeless, and looking for a new uh, foundation, a new ground. Yeah, I mean that is the that is the status that is the status for sure. And a north star. That's other. That's also a very important thing. You know, there are a lot of so much in what you said that's vital because there are different places you could look to for an absolute or for an anchor or a ground. So some people now, as previously, they look to God, but some people now, as previously, also look to uh, state authority to some sort of uh, locus of power where their word and their will and their decision is the law. So it's not always the theological alternative. In some case, it's some other identity that provides you with the sense of certainty. Um, and that's also important. And one other alternative I'll say, so on one hand, you have the return to religion. On the other hand, let's say the, the decisiveness of political will but one alternative that remains open, I think, is if in philosophy where you have neither, let's say, just the traditional obedience of a regular religion, nor the obedience to the authority of the state and political authority, you have something else, which is the idea that there is a human nature. So there's an old poet who said, you can chase nature out the door with a pitchfork, nevertheless, it returns. And in some sense, modernity and postmodernity in particular has been the process of chasing nature out the door with a pitchfork. The idea that we have a nature, that things have a nature, that there's a fixity or an essence or a shape to the world, you know, all of that's been chased out. But when, when it comes back in, like this old poet said that it must, you know, then that's another thing that can provide fixity, the idea of a human nature. But there too, you know, now that technology is developing in the way it is, there's a big question mark over the fixity of human nature, even so. So I would say what really characterizes the whole moment is this split consciousness, desire for a stable authority with the recognition of the current chaos. Yeah, I agree. You know, sometimes I think in my own perspective and how to orient it, you know, I've always been interested in psychology and philosophy and more recently in theology. And, you know, I find to your point about kind of realizing that you were hoodwinked to dis dismiss everything related to religion and now coming back to it and being like, wow, theology, it's like, I'd almost say it's more interesting than philosophy. Sorry to say, you know, to someone like yourself, but it's, it's so rich, you know, and, and sometimes, so sometimes I think, you know, when, when we're really trying to figure out how best to orient ourselves, is it just my ego, my lack of humility that's causing me to restraining me or keeping me from just making that commitment and saying, you know, I'm, I believe in God, I'm a follower of Christ, this is my North Star, and I'm going to let that animate my behavior. And, you know, I really, my primary orientation, I hope, or at least it's my attempt is to truth. And so I don't want to delude myself to the extent that I can, can stop myself from doing that. And though I see a lot of benefit in that approach, in saying the Bible is the word of God, Jesus Christ is the truth and the life, and, you know, taking that approach, I just, I feel like I would be, there's an element, so it's very pragmatic, I guess is what I'm trying to say. I think it's it's a great foundation for a, a healthy, stable life and families and communities, but I think there's an element missing, or there's or maybe as we were saying before, it hasn't been retrofitted for the time or something like that. And 
I see. And so I'm not ready to make that commitment yet. And as we were saying before, I, I think we are religious creatures in the sense that to really orient ourselves most beneficially in life, we need that North Star, that notion, that godly, like absolute. And to the and to that idea before of limitation and freedom or discipline and freedom, it seems like that kind of leap of faith, which is perhaps why we have that type of language and saying, this is the absolute, this is the masthead that I'm gonna tie myself to to orient myself for the for the best life I, I can have. I think it requires that kind of commitment. And I think there's a, a great benefit of making it consciously rather than having it made for you subconsciously. Because I agree with you that, so we're gonna, we're gonna look for that absolute authority or truth, let's say. And if it's not whatever religion, if it's not you know the notion of truth, let's say, I think in the world today, we would probably both agree for a lot of people, that decision has perhaps subconsciously been made, that void been filled by the state. And why not? Because look how big it is. Look how powerful it is. Look at the legal code. Look at the, that notion we all have that it's been 5,000 years of basically uninterrupted progress, you know, bottom left to top right in terms of all the things that we might think are the, the positive metrics of human being. And so why not ascribe to that apparatus, that institution, ultimate authority and legitimacy? And I think this is kind of where we get into the metaphysical aspect of the discussion, because I think you can say, well, you're always, the, the proof is in the pudding always, like what results from a particular orientation, a particular belief. And if we hold the state, which is this amorphous, you know, how do you even really define it, right? It's a bunch of people and a bunch of institutions and a bunch of laws selectively applied, you know, the whole mess that it is. Uh, but if you make that the top authority for truth and authority, let's say, what results? And I would say, and we could probably discuss this if, if we wanted to, that there's a use for it, but if it's, if it's elevated to that position of top absolute authority, things degrade very quickly. And I would say over the last two years, we've had a lot of really good examples of the kind of messed up things that happen. And even what we were discussing before about this general spirit of chaos that, that seems to be prevailing happen when that's held up as the absolute authority or truth. And of course, I think a lot of people would agree that that has been able to happen because it stepped into the vacuum of, let's say, a declining religious orientation or faith over the last 200 or, or 400 or however many years you want to put on that. And so that's the proof of that pudding. And it's not, it doesn't taste very good, let's say. And I think the proof of the religious pudding perhaps has tasted worse and worse up, up to the 19th or 20th century, perhaps because of the institution and the corruption of the church and, and other reasons. But it still seems like it was a better way to orient oneself. And I think that the crux of these discussions that we're now having is we seem to be at a place where we need to recapitulate that truth that is going to serve as the ultimate authority in, in how we orient ourselves, how we orient our perspectives and, and everything that downstream of that. And it, it's, it's not just sufficient perhaps to call it the pursuit of truth, because it, there seems to be the element of commitment that, really brings to life the benefit that that process uh, 
entails or that's that's latent in that process. And so I, I, I feel like that's why these discussions are, are happening a lot more now. That's why people are revisiting religion, because there's this recognition that you're going to have an absolute, you're going to have something that you so-called serve, that you subordinate yourself to, that is that you, that you hold up as a type of absolute authority, truth, value. What should that be? And it's extremely consequential what that is. And again, back to the kind of metaph metaphysical aspect of this, it's like, what does it say that holding up one thing as an absolute versus another has such different results? What does that say about reality, right? Like you hold up statism as an absolute. Things go to hell, lots of people die, lots of oppression. Okay, you hold up the notion of truth, beauty, love, or whatever virtues you believe are instantiated in, in, in Christ or any other religious faith, and the results that come from that are what are observed. And let's just say for the sake of simplicity here, they're better. What does that say about the nature of reality, the nature about how consciousness interfaces with reality that orienting in that way produces better results? I mean, I think that must inevitably say something about what's metaphysically true. And so the question is, is what can we use to orient ourselves that's most coherent with what is most metaphysically true? Because presumably that will result in the best outcomes. So the question is, what is that thing? And, you know, such is why we have discussions like this. Yeah. So you just put your finger on a beautiful nexus of issues and questions where on one hand you have, let's say the realm of truth, simply metaphysical truth, ontological truth, religious truth, uh, truth, simply, and how it relates to us in our political and social lives. Now that's a, that's a deep, brilliant and much discussed question that has its different adherence. On one hand, let's say you could have, let's take a different ways that you could uh, map that out. So Plato's cave allegory in the Republic is one of the classical statements because what does he say? Man is usually in the status of a slave looking at shadows on a wall in a cave. And there are the people who cast the shadows in front of the fire behind him and the possibility of exiting that whole world and seeing the light of the sun. Let's say the light of the sun or the sun itself, he calls it the idea of the good in the Republic. But for our purposes, just tweaking it for our discussion, let's say that's the truth. The sun represents the truth. Mm -hmm. Most people are not typically in the truth. They're in some in the shade of a double or third reflection of the truth. You know, typically they're under the manipulation of some other light rather than the light of the truth. But what Plato does not say is that it's in principle possible to blast the truth into the cave so that there are no more shadows, no more fire, no more shadow casters, so that everybody's illuminated. Because Plato thought or argued in the Republic, you could say that. It belongs to the nature of political life and it belongs to the nature of the human being that there's always going to be a sort of divide between the people who require guidance that they are given, that's sort of the shadows that are cast on the wall by the people who are the shadow casters, and those who can escape that whole world and go into the truth. In other words, there's a kind of division or distinction between the authoritative realm of opinion that guides the lives of people in politics and the quest for the truth, which only a few can sort of break through towards. And in fact, in the cave allegory, there's a very beautiful detail. Socrates, who's telling the story, says, if a liberator were to come down and liberate one of the cave dwellers, turn him around 
let him see that he's only been seeing shadows. That person would run back down to the shadows very quickly. He prefers mm. the world he knows. Even if you offer him truth, he would rather be with what's familiar than with what's true. That's very important. And then later he says the liberator, if he came down and he told everybody that, you know, they saw shadows, they would kill him or they would want to kill him. So it's not the case. If we take, let's say Socrates and Plato's presentation here as uh, worth considering, it's not the case either that everybody wants the truth. In fact, they'll kill truth tellers in some cases. And it may not be the case that everybody could have the truth. And so one of the criticisms of the Enlightenment project, which had this propaganda war against religion in the name of prejudice, is that it failed to learn the lesson of Plato's cave allegory. And it tried to blast the light of the truth throughout society from top to bottom. And in doing so, it removed people's ground, their religious belief, their religious faith, and it didn't replace it with anything. It tried to replace it with science, but it couldn't do so. And then you have that type of problem. So there's like, on one hand, what would it mean for us to break through to the truth? What's the nature of the truth? What's the nature of the true? Totally legitimate question. But then also it has to be brought into relationship with the also relevant question is truth. Can it ever become the element of social and political life? Or does social and political life depend on authoritative opinions? And then finally, what would be the relationship between the truth that belongs to the few seekers and the opinion that guides the life of the political communities? Because there are different ways of seeing that too. The opinion could be a lie, an authoritative myth that guides people but isn't true. Or it could be a reflection of the truth just in, let's say, poetic language, imagery, metaphor, and you know, more easily accessible. So I would say this whole realm, how these things relate, is the sweet spot of for sure, political theology, political philosophy, political metaphysics. And I would say it's a question that is, has to be one of the most important questions we could dig into today, because that's, that's the whole picture that's in crisis. You know, we don't know whether there's a sun or what it is, what it would mean to get the truth. You know, the whole cave allegory, the image that it represents has become so distorted. We actually have to return to the allegory in some sense to think through the limits of what can be done politically and um, and what can be hoped for. Because we don't want to, you know, the idea that a truth teller would come back into the cave of political life, try to enlighten people and be killed, we have to take that seriously. I think we've, we see it, but it also sets some limits on what we can hope for in terms of the um, enlightenment of politics. Yeah, I mean, one of the things that makes me think, well, many, one is that, you know, I'm, I'm fairly critical of institutions generally because they're so easily corrupted because institutions are by their nature hierarchical and hierarchies by their nature you know people that tend to ascend them or aspire to ascend them have you know power hungry sort of leanings and as a result power gets concentrated at the top and they become tyrannical or or corrupted in some way but as you're saying all this i mean it does Let's say you the institution of the church, the sun, the truth, the thing that's supposed to steward that thing, and maybe you know try to send some people down. But you also have uh, the the philosophical class, which you know to me, I don't know how I don't know I wouldn't I don't want to say explicitly this is how I perceive them, but I think part of the role is like let's say you have that 
absolute. However, society capitulates that and what, what is held up and, and stewarded the most as that form of truth. But you have the philosophical class, it seems to me to be like very non-committal. And the reason why that's important is because it's a check on the, the committing to the absolute. And like I said before, I think there's a great benefit in commitment, you know, and again, it kind of fractally applies to all areas of life, committing to a practice, committing to a partner, committing to, you know, all sorts of things and committing to God, perhaps being, you know, one, the, the biggest one you can commit to that binding liberation that we were talking about. But that is a very slippery slope because when you commit, you, you know, you go all in, you orient yourself by and to that thing. And so what if you're wrong? And so you you need that counterbalance to keep throwing stones at at that you know glass house or to keep poking holes in that thing to 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 keep it honest to say like oh, you know you're on course you're off course you know and so so as to protect as much as as can is possible the the act of making that commitment to try to maintain the fidelity of making that commitment in society and 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 why it's so important and, you know, so in that light or from that perspective, you know, we often hold up the separation of church and state as being like a, a boon to modernity, right? Like, good thing we did that. And perhaps that's correct insofar as the, the church had become so involved in state affairs and in wars and in conflict and, and you know, people would... Uh, embark on wars in the name of fill in the blank God. And they, they, they align themselves with the church and the church align themselves with the power so that they could both, you know, kind of play off each other's authority for their own benefit. But was it ultimately, or is it ultimately the right thing? And will we return to a place where, you know, the, the political apparatus, the state is more tethered to, or, or is more disciplined by, or checked by the principles that we might extract from religious authority because it, it would seem absent that what is the the check and balance on their authority why not like why not dream up any particular law that seems rational in the zeitgeist of the times but a hundred years hence may seem completely asinine because it was un, untethered from any greater sense of metaphysical truth and, you know, I think we're probably going to look back 100 years from now. I mean, we might even look back five years from now, hopefully at the COVID years and be like, wow, it, aren't there a ton of great examples? And and not even just the COVID years, because as you said in your own example in 2017, I mean, that's another great example. You look back and be like, how were such decisions made? How was that spirit of chaos able to, you know, have so much life and so much influence in in everybody? And I think it's not unreasonable to to expect that people will, will conclude like, oh, there was no stronger check. There was no metaphysical check, truthful check. And I think that's part of, if I'm going to give the devil its due, because again, I'm, I'm very kind of anti-institution, but that's part of the role of the institution of the church is to try to steward that that check and and for the benefit, you know, that it has when combined with the authority of the state. Now, there's obviously other elements of that which we can get into. And there's obviously, you know, an important discussion of like, well, how do you keep that institution that stewards the so-called truth, the absolute in the church? How do you keep that from being a corrupting influence rather than a, you know, uh, 
a virtuous influence, let's say. Um, and that's a, a very difficult question to answer, but perhaps we will return to a place where we, in, instead of seeing the separation of church and state as being a positive thing, we'll realize that it was actually a negative thing. And maybe the process of revisiting the validity of, of religious ideas currently is the beginning of that very process. Yeah, I think you're right. That may very well be the case. I want to say a couple of things here. So first of all, Leo Strauss, I've mentioned before, he's a great authority for me in these questions because his formulations were so uh, profound, well-read, thoughtful, and relevant. So one of the things that he says is that the two roots of the Western world, which is currently in a crisis, are biblical faith and Greek philosophy. And he says that these are two different paths. They're different, okay? They cannot be harmonized. You can have philosophy in the service of theology, but you can't have some sort of synthesis of the two. There's always going to be either one or the other that stands front and center in a person's life. And what he said at the end of this essay, Progress or Return, is what the task is for us, he says, really two fundamental options. Either you're a theologian open to the challenge of philosophy. It's kind of what you said, a commitment, a committed faith that is open to the challenge of philosophy, mm -hmm. or a philosopher who's open to the challenge of theology. You know, so in either case, there's an openness to the alternative, one that instructs you, informs you, deepens you, even though, let's say, you've made your, you've placed your bets, as it were, or, you know, you've taken your position. So for him, theology meant the life of loving obedience to a revealed authority. In the case of Christianity, I think it's clear how that would look as the fundamental existential commitment. In the case of philosophy, it's the life that tries to pursue through, as it were, human wisdom alone, you know, without not being anti-divine authority, but always putting it through the prism of, well, can we really know? What do we really know? How do we really know? And so on. Unassisted human reason, as he put it. But in either case, even though you have an alternative here, Jerusalem and Athens, as he sometimes phrased it, or the Bible and Greek philosophy, what's important in my view is that there's an, it's two very serious options, not some sort of tri trivial trifling option, and that each one is open to the other. And I think that any configuration there, whether a person goes, I'm going to be a philosopher open to the challenge of theology, or I'm going to be a theologian open to the challenge of philosophy, either one of those would be an improvement and would be better than slavish obedience to the uh, to the state with its current ideology. So that's number one. You know, I can't, I, I as somebody who tends to, you know, let's say who finds myself in these disputes and in these questions, can't say to, to you in particular, you know, about existential commitment to the church or to Christ or, you know, to becoming a Christian of this or that um, persuasion. But what's the crucial thing? that both philosophy and theology are looking for something higher than our ordinary world of opinion. The philosopher is questing for a kind of comprehensive wisdom, but one that can pass through the world of human reflection. The theologian is equally seeking for a comprehensive wisdom, guidance, and understanding, one that's open to the realm of the divine and to its laws and commandments. And either one of those, as I say, is a serious guide and a serious authority and North Star for a human life in a time of chaos. Um, so that's to give that its 
uh, it's due. And then another formulation of this, in some sense, is political theology is a kind of attitude that's going to take what we've learned or what we know from revealed religion, from an act of existential commitment or faith, a leap of faith, and try to bring that world into our politics, try to inform it and try to shape the politics in light of the theological decision. And that is one project that I think is going to be growing in, you know, you're going to have more people wanting that for the reasons that we've mentioned. And parallel to it or uh, running, along, yeah, running alongside it is the sort of philosopher's version, let's say, or the platonic version of that, which is that, yes, in fact, the philosopher agrees, we need a higher morality. We need divine morality. We need divine law. But for the philosopher, it includes the question, additional set of questions, you know? So slightly less um, obedience and slightly more, uh, uh, not that the, look, the theologian, anybody who's read mystical texts, religious texts, theological texts, disputes among theologians knows by no means is it the case that theologians don't inquire, don't question, not at all. It's faith-seeking knowledge, which means there's Look at Aquinas, Aquinas, question after question after question, elaborated in the most systematic and rigorous way that you can imagine. So that's not, as I say, you can use inquiry just like the philosopher can have a kind of sense of divine inspiration. You know, it's not at all the case that philosophy is radically distinct from a love of God or a concern for God or a care for God or an openness to the divine. Not at all. In my opinion, philosophy at its peak is absolutely inspired by the realm of the divine. And probably theology at its peak is absolutely illuminating the human intellect and all of our other capacities. So they have a lot in common, even if they're not the same. But the, really what I want to convey is that either path, either alternative, either option is probably eventually going to fill the chaos, the, chaos, the vacuum and the corruption that we have now. And we're going to be faced with that problem. Well, how do we how does that look because one of the problems with political theology and political philosophy that's the classical liberal types don't like is that you know why did we get into the why did we get into the separation and into the current state at all because if i if i make a substantive moral commitment in my political order then i'm arranging a hierarchy a certain exclusions right if i say this is right this is wrong this is good this is bad this is just this is unjust it might seem like i'm being judgy or discriminating. Now, obviously, everybody does that. They can't help but do it. You know, Biden discriminates, the Department of Justice discriminates, and all of the morally self-righteous virtue signalers discriminate, but they do it in this confused sort of way. But when you re-inject, take, I think James Lindsay is somebody who, in the public intellectual culture war commentary sphere, is always warning that a Christian politics is like, don't deal with woke leftism through a Christian politics, he says, because that's just going to be the right-wing version of exclusionary leftist wokeism. In other words, as soon as you inject substantive moral principles into politics, you're going to be as fascistic as the left, from his point of view. I disagree. I think you disagree. And most of the authors that I study and teach disagree, because they say politics needs to have a substantive core. And the mm -hmm. fact that some people will be in and some people will be out isn't the end of the story. It, now, there are other difficulties because let me just say one thing, I just uh, in case it happens to be interesting, I won't dwell on it, but very briefly to show uh, one of the nuances of this question. If you have one world government and that one world government has a substantive moral core, 
that includes some people and excludes some people, then the people who are excluded have nowhere else to go. They have no other alternative because they're under a single global system. Whereas if you have a multipolar world or if you have many different states, societies, countries, nations, and so on, then for example, this one can be Christian, this one can be Islamic, this one can be secular, this one can be whatever it happens to be, and there's somewhere to go. So even the relationship of the problem of substantive morality, whether it excludes people who still feel like they have somewhere to go, and whether therefore we should have one world government or a multipolar world, all of those questions are intimately related. But yes, I, I agree with you. When there's no North Star, when there's no direction, when you're relying only on institutions and their power, there's going to be a hunger for, once again, the actual uh, substance of morality, justice, faith, divinity, virtue, godliness, belonging, identity, legitimacy, and all of that. Because without it, without it, we're lost. Yeah. Uh, let me ask you a quick question before I ask you a longer one. But and I'll, I'll preface that with a short anecdote. But when I was, I don't know, in my teenage years, you know, I like to read a bit of philosophy, like, you know, Machiavelli and Aurelius and, you know, the, the typical, typical people. And, you know, I'm trying to figure out what my orientation is and what I, what my North Star is, let's say, in keeping with the metaphor we've been using. And the question mark was what I kind of came to. You know, at first it was maybe a bit more hedonistic because I'm like, well, who the hell can discern truth? But we have all these senses and things feel good and things feel bad. So, you know, why not just appeal to them? And then you realize, well, that taken to its extreme doesn't doesn't wind up in the best place. And so perhaps that's not a great orienting philosophy. And then, you know, in the face of an infinite universe and all the things we don't know, it just seemed like the question mark was was the thing. And, you know, I didn't didn't think too much more of it and, you know, went on with life. But that also seems inadequate because, well, there's two, you know, there's two questions here. The first is like, well, you know, what is that question mark? You know, of course it's a process, but is it sufficient? Like, does it, does it not lack that element of commitment, that element of the leap of faith that we've, as we've been exploring, or at least, you know, seems to be my reasoning currently, there's something incredibly generative and beneficial when making that commitment. And again, I think we see fractal re reflections of that truth in things like marriage or committing ourselves to, you know, a type of work or something within ourselves or a practice of some kind, you know, really when you commit to something, you kind of bring the magic of the universe into it, let's say. Um, so do you think it's true that the, the philosophical crowd generally have for whatever reason, and maybe they're right and maybe they're wrong here, just been apprehensive about making that commitment, closing the door, closing the book, as it were, on a thing. And the more theological crowd have basically decided they're going to make a commitment and they've decided what they're going to make it to. And then almost after the fact, for a lot of people, they try to understand why they've made the decision. And it's kind of like that scene in the in the Matrix where the, the Oracle tells Neo, um, you know, he says like, why am I here? And she says, you already know why you're, you're or she, something like you've already made the decision. You're only here with me to understand why you've made it, you know, something like that. So do you think the, the philosophical crowd throughout history has just been apprehensive about making that commitment? And if so, 
why do you think that's been the case? Yeah, so I'll say I have a few things I want to say about this. First of all, yes and no. So here's the yes side. The yes side is that- Great we, philosopher answer. Yeah, but this is, <laughs> I, I promise I have something more to say than just yes. So yes, um, the life of action needs guidance. It can't be open forever to an infinite pondering and speculation because right. ultimately we need to act. To right. act means to decide, to decide means to commit, and therefore we have to just do it. But that tells us a few things. It tells us that there may be a distinction between the world uh, that's necessitated by action, decision, guidance, and therefore commitment. But also we have the possibility of trying to understand the world outside of that. So philosophy has often been associated with leisure, not having to make a decision, not having to choose right now, not because you're indecisive, but because you recognize in practical affairs, I need to act. But in theoretical affairs and contemplative affairs, I don't need to act. I have the leisure and the freedom to try to understand. And understanding, yes, you can try to understand the decision that you made, the commitment that you made, but you can also try to understand in a different way. What's the nature of reality? Does that require us to have made a commitment at the outset? Not necessarily. You know, what, what is... <laughs> not to go into all of the questions, right? But there are questions that you could raise that don't require any commitment other than the commitment to try to understand, to try to know, a commitment to, to at least truth on one hand, understanding, wisdom, insight, illumination. That's its own kind of commitment. So when I say yes and no, yeah, practical life needs guidance and guidance can't sit around inquiring forever. It needs to act on the basis of other things than just perfect clarity. You don't know, right? Mm -hmm. Is this the right woman to marry? Is this the right job to take? Is this the right, you know, if I didn't go to work this day, would that have happened? We don't know. We have to act. That's the nature of the realm of practical activity. But the no part is where I say a philosopher is, in my beautiful example here, I mean, not <laughs> what's beautiful is not that it's mine. But what's beautiful is what he said about it. Martin Heidegger, a German philosopher uh, of the 20th century, he writes very beautifully about questioning. Questioning as saying yes to that which we haven't mastered, we haven't mastered, it. it's a question for us, but it's compelling. So when we question, we're exposing ourselves to the realm of something that is compelling, it draws us forward. But it's, the, it's that which we are inquiring into draws us forward. So it can only do that if we've committed to pursuing the question. So there definitely is an element of deep existential commitment in genuine philosophizing. Because you've really said, I want to pursue this question to the end. Like, I want to pursue this job. I want to pursue this woman. I want to pursue this hobby. And I want to pursue this question. So there definitely is an element of commitment in philosophizing. And then one other distinction in Heidegger that I found very helpful when he talks about questioning. He says, there's one way of questioning that keeps everything far from us. A kind of cynical skepticism whose job it is to push things away. That's one way that people question. They question to create distance from themselves and what they're questioning. But as I just mentioned, he had another account of questioning, which moves us beyond ourselves, brings us deeper and more radically into a realm to be discovered, which is completely different. They're both questioning, but one, as I say, protects oneself. The other transforms oneself. And so we have to be clear that those are two different attitudes towards philosophy as well. And the real sweet promise, in my opinion, a life committed to understanding that throws itself into the question 
as opposed to a life that trifles with questions in order to keep everything at a safe distance. Those are two very different ideas of philosophy. Mm -hmm. You know, one of the things that I often think about is that regard, we've been talking about truth as maybe a, a secular absolute or North star, and then the idea of God or Christ as obviously a religious one. And one of the questions I, I, I find fascinating is like, well, those are two words or ideas or icons or, you know, representations that we have enough kind of overlap on that when I say it, you kind of nod and know what I'm saying. Although, but the, the thing is, is like, what are we really thinking about when we say those things? Like when I say truth, and maybe I, I, I make the distinction, capital T truth, what do you think I'm saying there? Do I even know what I'm saying there? And when I, if I were to say, I'm a follower of Christ, for example, what kind of information images conjure up in my mind as, as constituting that relationship so that I can say something like that? You know, and, and Peterson often, I think, rightly responds to questions like, do you believe in God? Do you follow Christ? With something to that effect, because he's like, well, what do you mean by believe? And what do you mean by God? And what do you mean by Christ? Because it's, you know, it's by no means obvious what someone means when they say those things. And to your point about we must act. And so there's the kind of practical application of how you constitute your action and how you commit to action. And then there's, you know, the theorizing about more meaningful things, let's say. I think the greatest display of your philosophy is actually in your actions, not in the books you've written, not in the things you've said, because what is more relevant than the ideas that are going to animate your action? And so I think in all of our action, what we believe is actually always on display, whether we like it or not. So you can tell me until you're blue in the face that you're a follower of Christ. But if I see you engaging in whatever sort of immoral or unvirtuous, invirtuous activity, well, then I'm my conclusion is that you're actually not what you think you are. You're, you, you're saying one thing, and perhaps you, you wish it were the case, or you, you hope you want to express that, you want to signal that, like we were saying earlier, but it's actually not the case, because if it doesn't show up in your actions, I don't know if I can say that it's real. In fact, I, I don't think I can. And, uh, and so in that sense, like all of our actions display our most deeply held beliefs, the things that we're most, we most subordinate ourselves to that, you know, the, our gods, basically our, our God is in all of our actions in that what, how we act displays what we hold in the highest place. And I think that would make a lot of people uncomfortable because a lot of people I think tend to separate the two. It's like, well, you know, I'm this sort of person. I have these flaws and these problems and I act this way sometimes, but I, believe in this over here. And I guess my response to that is you act out what you believe unavoidably. And maybe after the fact, if you're a conscientious or, or reflective sort of person, contemplative sort of person, someone who wants to know themselves, then they try to dig into why they've acted in the way they have, how they should act in the future, or how they think they would what actions would be more in line with the beliefs that they believe should be held in the highest place? And then how do they assess their, their success in doing so? And so, I mean, I think that's, that's the, the, the rub for me is that assessing action is the most important. And that's why in the world today, you know, when you see people, it doesn't matter whatever they're talking about. If you're like a medical person and you're, 
you know, you're fat and decrepit or whatever, or if you're, I mean, Plato's kind of a good example, right? Because apparently he was a jacked wrestler, right? And I, if you're, if you're a philosopher, I think you're, con you're contending with these big ideas of how to exist in the world, how to confront the infinitude of chaos and novelty in the world and, and conform it to something virtuous and to act out wisdom in the world. I mean, it would seem to be the case that a necessary element of that is being formidable physically because, you know, your consciousness and all the ideas that emerge within that are housed in this physical body. And if you're going to embody those virtues, I think they would manifest in something that in, in, in a form that is formidable ultimately. And so, um, you know, I'm, I'm, maybe I'll just ha hand it out back over to you after saying that, but I, I do think as much as the philosophizing we might do and looking at theology and that kind of stuff, again, uh, I, I overuse this term, but the proof I do think is in the pudding in that our actions reveal what we truly believe, not what we'd like to believe of ourselves and not what we aspire for ourselves, but our actions reveal what we really believe and what we really are. And um, I think in, in today's day and age, going back to that conversation about chaos and inversion and stuff, I think there's been an even greater gulf and too much of a allowance for people to espouse one thing and act out another. Like there seems to be a, a wide gulf between the two. Yeah, you're definitely right to point to the importance of action, what it shows that we care about. And there are examples in the history of philosophy, like Socrates, for example, you know, classic for Plato, Socrates lived the life of philosophy, and you see it in how he lived, that he had conversations with people about their opinions, that he was just and moderate and decent and genuinely wisdom seeking. So, you know, Plato doesn't just depict the thoughts of Socrates, he depicts the life of Socrates, therefore what he did and how he acted. So that's important for sure. And then the gap between uh, what you say is important to you and what you show is important to you, I think we can call kind of hypocrisy, right? When a person is acting in complete disregard of what they claim, or when they can claim it in order to give some sort of a veneer or appearance of caring, then you have the realm of hypocrisy. And I think that does characterize no less than chaos and uh, confusion and clown world, the world that we live in, people who say one thing and do something else. So that's a very important gap. I think you're right. And <laughs> examples come to mind for me from, again, Plato's dialogues, because I always like to try to find the old parallels, you know, when there's a nice dialogue, I won't go into the details, but Socrates goes to talk to these two young uh, guys. And one of them is an athlete. And the other one is sort of a bookish nerd. And the athlete is like, these guys are wasting their time with philosophy. And then the bookish nerd, he comes to the defense of philosophy. And then Socrates really shows that it's the athlete somehow who's closer to the truth, you know, as opposed to the bookish nerd. So even there too, you know, there are examples of how important it is to have the action, the embodiment, the evidence, and not just the words, okay? Not just the pudding without the proof or the proof without the pudding. So yeah, that, that's, that's important. The only thing that I'd want to say um, slightly, not above and beyond, but another element here, just to connect it to what I was saying before, which is this, there is action like, who, what did you do? You know, like Elon Musk, right? What did you accomplish today? Uh, what did you do? You know, who did you help? What did you, how did you improve? And all of that. But the pure desire to know, so not as a kind of uh, veneer, not as a kind of signal, okay? But the genuine desire to know, 
there are, you could say, acts of understanding. You won't necessarily see them outwardly. And I think this is reflected even in the Christian tradition. There's a story of Mary and Martha, you know, the world, the life of action and the life of contemplation. Again, I'm not talking about the, um, the, the bullshit verbal, mm. I'm so good, whereas actually I'm not. I mean, genuine contemplation where like, if you look at a person who's meditating, they don't seem to be doing very much but you know that there's something happening. Or if you look at a person who's worshiping, maybe the action component isn't as easy to see, but it's like an internal act or an act of understanding. So provided that we supplement our notion of activity with acts of understanding, acts of worship, you know, ones where it's less obvious externally that somebody's doing something, but they're also not separating their thought from their action. It's just a specific kind of action. Uh, then I think we round out the picture. You can't have somebody says, oh yeah, I care very deeply about uh, wisdom. Okay, well, where's the evidence? Mm -hmm. What are you doing to care deeply about wisdom? Or I care deeply about other people. Show me the evidence, right? In what sense, where does this, how does it actually look in practice? So 100%, without that, you have a risk of hypocrisy. You have a risk of self-delusion. Sometimes it could be on purpose. Sometimes it could be by accident. A person may not even know the huge gap between what he says he cares about and what he actually cares about until someone right. points it out from the side. So all of that is, uh, all of that is crucial. Perhaps, you know, and leaving aside the historicity argument for a moment, but, and I'm sure this point has been made, you know, many times throughout the years, but if, you know, because we're humans and there's a lot of mimicry in how we capitulate our actions, there's a lot of social kind of following of behavior and that kind of stuff. You, know, you could just say that, and I, I don't believe, like, I don't think anything hangs around for 2000 years by decree, basically, you know, there, there has to be something genuinely inspirational of a thing for it to hang, have any sort of longevity. And so I don't buy the notion of like, well, religion is just a thing because the church has crammed it down everyone's throats for 2000 years. Like, no, there's way more to it than that. Um, but it, it certainly seems reasonable to be the case that Okay, you have this ambiguous notion of truth that after a lot of dialogue, we might be able to triangul triangulate in on a bit. And then we can, as we're just saying now, we try to figure out, well, what does that look like embodied? What does that look like in action? And perhaps the reason why, you know, the religions of the world have been so sticky and, you know, probably more, well, almost definitely more popular than philosophy, let's say, or more important than philosophy in a lot of people's lives is because they have an answer to that. It's like, okay, well, I, I get all this virtue and truth and love and freedom and wisdom and all this kind of stuff. But what does that look like when it's in a composite of a, a person? Like, how, how am I supposed to use all that to construe my action? Like, I, I don't know how to balance all that stuff. And religions, by and large, say like this, here, this is the, the central hero of the faith. You know, and, and so someone in Jesus Christ, you might say, oh, that. So like, love that and emulate that and that's how I am supposed to combine all those things together that I would deem value, valuable and virtuous and true and live that out in the world. And so if I follow that example effectively, that's the way to do it. Whereas, of course, in philosophy, they don't really have that. You know, maybe you have the Nietzschean notion of the Ubermensch, but it's not certainly not as well capitulated or, you know, prevalent or revered in the same way. You know, you just you have lots of ideas but you don't have that crystallized into a, you know, anthropomorphized individual that helps 
people determine their action. And to go back to the, the cave uh, discussion for a moment, because you were saying, you know, not everyone wants to leave the cave. Not everyone even knows that the cave is bad, of course, and all this stuff. And one of my questions I was going to ask at the time was like, what makes, like, why do some people poke their head up out of the cage? Why do some people look around and be like, something's not right? And they move toward the light. And I, I, I'm, I suspect you've seen the like uh, bell curve meme going around on Twitter the last few years. You know, so it's almost the case like on the left, you have make, you know, make family love God, they, like the caveman sort of person. And in the center, you have all this philosophizing and complexity and questions and all that kind of stuff. And then on the right, again, you have make family love God. And I, I wonder if, because one of my questions was going to be also like, what draws more people out of the cave than, you know, let's say there's always going to be some, but why do we get differences? Why does the pendulum swing? Why do more people come in? Why do more people get stuck in? And is one of the primary reasons why religion has stuck around for so long is because as imperfect as it is, it's simple. It provides an, an, an example to emulate and to follow. And for the, for that reason, it's sufficient enough to pull whatever that right balance of people in the cave is to, if not out, but toward the light. And that staves off, you know, complete degradation or destruction of the society or the country or, or what have you. What do you think? Yeah, I know. I think that's right. There's no question. I would say from my point of view, from the point of view of the people that I, I study, teach and admire that religion has a crucially significant role to play socially and one that couldn't possibly be fulfilled by philosophy. No question. So religion pulls people closer to morality, decency, closer to the basic requirements of a human, of a happy human life, of a good and moral human life. As you say, walk in the ways of God, you know, have a family and, uh, and all of that. There's no way that philosophy could ever reach the same number of people or reach them as effectively as religion does. So then that's, I would say, indisputable, okay? But then you have all kinds of additional questions, which is, well, what's the exact relationship between what religion teaches and what philosophy, let's say, teaches, right? Is, it, is religion kind of, like Nietzsche had said, Christianity is Platonism for the people. That's one version, you know, that Christianity takes the basic principles. I'm not saying this is my view. I'm saying it's one example of how they relate that Nietzsche said. But other ones are, you know, like Augustine's view that, in fact, Christianity is truer than Platonism. Platonism is a preparation for the true faith, not the opposite way around. So, again, as somebody who tends to be more sensitive to the qu questions, I like to lay out those alternatives. I can't tell people exactly how to answer it for themselves, you know. One person will say Christianity is Platonism for the people. One person will say Platonism is Christianity for the unfaithful. You know, that genuinely you need to take that extra and additional leap into Christianity, into the faith, into, um, into Christ. So those are all options. Well, as for why some people go there, you know, why do some people poke their heads out, as you said? It may be different if we ask, why do some people get turned on to philosophy? Why do some people get turned on to religion? There may be an overlap, but I'm not sure that the circles are exactly the same, you know, that they map on one to another completely. Uh, there are people for sure who I think can be reached religiously, absolutely legitimately, like in, ev in every sense, authentically and truly. When they hear 
the gospel of morality, faith, and when they hear that preached and they say that they felt the Holy Spirit, as far as I can tell, that is a legitimate experience. People do are overcome with some sort of inner testimony when they hear a message that resonates as true. But I would also say that seems to me to be distinct from the way that somebody's reached philosophically. Because to be reached philosophically, you can't just have the spirit that it's true. You have it with these other additional, you know, um, with this another set of operations attached. So maybe the poll philosophically, it's an interesting question. I'd have to think more about it, but there's no question for me. I know people, as I'm sure you do, as I'm sure your listeners do, who have heard a religious message at a time when they hadn't heard one before, whether it was at a low in their life or not at a low in their life. And it resonates in a way that obviously it's like you rang a bell and this other one started to ring next to it. You know, or you have a tuning mm-hmm. fork, you hit one and the other one starts to hit and something in a person resonates with the message in a way that's very properly described as you felt the Holy Spirit. But the, again, the mechanism of that, when a potential philosopher hears a philosophical message, probably there's something like that, but it's distinct. So for sure, religion can reach more people. For sure, religion leads people to inquire also. There's no question into truth, wisdom, goodness, the cosmos, what is the world? Why are we here? Right? As those are very, those are all of those questions have a firm foundation in all, every theological tradition. And every theological tradition, incidentally, has its more or less philosophical types, more or less mystical types, more or less legalistic types, more or less moralistic types. So religion is a whole cosmos. There's there are no less brilliant philosophers, mystics, and uh, and uh, jurisprudence in Christianity than in Islam than in Judaism. So that's a whole world or a cosmos to itself. But yeah. I would definitely say, I don't know how a person, res- you know, maybe it's, maybe it's this, I'll, I'll say one thing, a moral message, everybody is somehow concerned with the issue of morality. If I have a child, and I know that somebody has uh, injured my child, or I have property, and I know that somebody has attacked my property, you know, everybody is implicated in the realm of morality, in a way that when you hear a moral message, it's in principle, can resonate with anybody. Everybody is swimming in a sea of moral concern. Not everybody is swimming in a sea of the kind of theoretical concerns that philosophy has at, in some of its moments, you know? Like, what is the nature of unity? Does non-being exist? If, you ask, if I ask somebody, does non-being exist? Nah, maybe they'll be into it, maybe they won't be into it. A specific type of person has to be into it. But if I say, is it moral for me to go to a business that you created and confiscate your property for myself? Everybody has an interest in that. Is it fair for me to take, to randomly, you know, attack a family member of yours in the name of historical inequality? Everybody has an interest and an opinion in that. So that's maybe that is the difference. The specific type of philosophical question is on the abstractor side, whereas moral issues, if you're a human being, they concern you. What does that mean for their relevance? Because, you know, in, in that example you just gave, you could, you could also just say, well, the nature of unity is not all that relevant to me, but you stealing my the shit from my shop is, so that's why I care. So what is right. the relevance of exploring the things that are irrelevant so, to me? Yeah, well, here, I mean, somehow each person has to feel it out for themselves because 
why do the people who are drawn to, let's say, pure abstract theoretical philosophy, I mean, that's not all there is to it, right? But I'm using that as an example to really make the contrast clear. They say, there's something in us when we reason, when we think, that is so basic, like our basic categories of thought that lie behind even our social, political, and moral concerns. And the philosophers, the people who are attracted to it, they want to know why should we be invested as human beings with some exposure to or knowledge of ba such basic trans-social, trans-political, trans-historical categories of thought? And when I said earlier that philosophers sometimes have a kind of rapturous experience of divine illumination all their own, in some cases, they say, when I go into that set of questions, you know, questions about being, non-being, identity, difference, uh, substance, and all of that, they're like, these are the same structures of thought that God would have or would have used if he made the universe. You know, so for example, when I think about the nature of causality, I'm somehow, let's put it two ways, closer to God than I am when I think about morality, one way, or at least no further than the, to God than the person who thinks about morality, you know? So is God concerned with how man lives in the world with right and wrong? Yes. But do we also not come close to God when we think about things like the nature of time and causality? The philosophers seem to think, the ones that I'm attracted to anyways, yes, we do. So both of those things, you know, you could say, if another way of putting it roughly, okay, but hopefully close enough for rock and roll, is that God is will and intellect. And when we're concerned with morality, we're concerned with his will. And when we're concerned with theoretical science, we're concerned with his intellect. And both of them are paths to God. Theoretical science is less relevant because we're less involved in it. Morality is more relevant because it's always present for us but both of them represent what it is to be human in relationship to God. Yeah. You know, that, that distance analogy that you just made makes me think that, you know, even people that would describe themselves as philosophers, like they're still, they're still pursuing something that they deem to be redemptive right now. They might construe it as truth or ultimate truth. And so they move toward it as much as they can, but it really seems like, you you pull you you peel back the onion enough you move into those you know difficult to conceptualize or paradoxical spaces enough and you, maybe you come to a very similar place and maybe there's a discomfort in in describing it or construing it in the same way that theologians have done or maybe you want to leave the door open ajar because you know there's a lot of baggage in in the former but it's like it's almost the case that I think. There, there are two ways of dressing up the same thing, two ways of approaching it. But I, I keep coming back to this notion, and you know, I don't mean any offense of this view as a as a philosopher, and I, I I'm not uh, committed to a particular faith, let's say. But it, it, I keep it keeps seeming to me that the the difference is one potentially their ego is restraining them from submitting themselves to that capital T truth, absolute God. And the other are making the decision or, you know, their ego is not restraining them from submitting to God. And of course, we, we, that, that type of language shows up in religion, religious narrative all the time, right? As being necessary. You have to submit, you have to subordinate yourself to God. And I wonder if that's like the primary difference. And then again, you know, to, to, I don't know, uh, 
make this relevant to the discussion we've been having. And there's, I mean, there's almost too much nuance and, and complexity and asterisks is here for it to maybe even be reasonable, you know, worthwhile to talk about. But if you look at the pudding of those two things, you look at someone who's, who's conducted themselves at like the, the philosophical, the inquisitive sort of life and the genuinely so-called religious life. And what are the, the two outcomes that you see? And I, I'm not going to make a judgment on that either way, but I think that that is a potential way to judge. I don't know how, what parameters you'd put on that or, or you know, again, yeah. maybe, maybe too hard to assess, but is that a distinction that you think is fair? The kind of unwillingness to submit and subordinate versus the willingness to submit and subordinate, but generally you're kind of like triangulating on the same thing. Uh, yeah, I would say there are two, two possible formulations. One is exactly as you said, a religious person wants to submit uh, and does submit and the philosopher is hesitant. And in that sense, doesn't. Maybe it's his ego for sure. Maybe it's something else in him. We don't know. Another formulation is that each of them is submitting, but to something different. Religious person submits to an answer. The philosopher submits to a question. I think that's a viable formulation as well, because as I say, there's something about true philosophy that does still have this reverential and submissive attitude, but more towards a quest than towards uh, guidance. But another thing in looking at the putting of the two lives, the proof of the putting of the two lives, the great comparison there, because I should make clear, you know, when I say philosopher, I don't mean everybody who runs around calling himself a philosopher, everybody who teaches in a department of philosophy. I mean, here's something as exalted as when as our perfect representatives of the religious life. So the really beautiful comparison, which we're not going to do, but you leave it open to the people who are interested in it, is a comparison of the life of Socrates and the life of Jesus, for example. Right, right. So I don't think you could look at the life of Socrates, who's a kind of icon of, a, of philosophy as a way of life, and say necessarily that it Okay, it definitely is, I'll say this, it definitely is a distinct kind of life. So I'm, I'm married, I have children, and our family is, uh, we come from a Jewish background, okay? In a Jewish tradition, kids are super important, wives are super important, okay? And their family learning and studying together and all of that is very important. And Socrates, by contrast, he was not reputed to be a great husband, and he's not reputed to be a great father, and family life was not the most important thing for him. Plato records and his one Plato writes uh, a dialogue about the last day of Socrates's life and Socrates's wife comes in Socrates. He was accused of corrupting the youth, not believing in the gods of the city, introducing new gods. He was found guilty. He had to drink uh, hemlock poisoned and died. And on the day of his death, his wife comes in to the prison cell, really weeping. And he sends her away in order to spend his last hours together with his friends, talking about the question of the immortality of the soul. That's like a nice picture, you know, <laughs> go let the wife be comforted by the other women. I'm going to talk to my students about right. the issue of the immortality of the soul. So my wife doesn't like that when I tell her that story. She's like, <laughs> hell, you know, almost to hell with Socrates. So it's true that they bear different fruits or in other words, that the lives are not equivalent. But, you know, Socrates, if you look at the life of Socrates, it's not like damning evidence against the virtues of a philosophical life. So that's what it would mean, I would say, to run the experiment. We take Jesus probably as the great example for our purposes of the man of faith, you know, to put it mildly, uh, the son of God and the life of Socrates and see where is it super clear that we believe the fruits of this one are superior to the fruits of that one. I don't want to prejudge the question, but I think that's what it would look like to, uh, to get into it very seriously. 
Uh, and then, you know, the followers of Jesus and the followers of Socrates, because Jesus, obviously, in this case, you have distributed a morality worldwide and over thousands of years in a way that Socrates didn't accomplish. You know, there's no, there are not uh, hundreds of millions of Socratics in the world, but there are hundreds of millions of Christians in the world. So there, there are for sure layers and elements to this question. But I just wanted to guard against the view that when I say, when I make my case, let's say, or when I defend the view of philosophy, that I mean, everybody who runs around calling himself a philosopher, but acts like some sort of, uh, you know, not to be taken seriously. Just like right. when we talk about religion, we don't mean the person who claims to be religiously inspired, but runs around acting like a total uh, embarrassment. We right. mean the most true distillation of the life of faith on one hand and the life of inquiry on the other. And uh, I think Socrates and Jesus would be, you know, may it be our fortune that we can come even close to either one of them uh, right. in our own lives, whichever road we choose. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I'm sure it's not lost on you the way and, you know, what happened to Socrates, you know, corrupting the youth of Athens and then even, you know, uh, uh, holding other gods or, or like, what was the terminology? That, that Plato so he's accu used. accused of uh, not believing in the gods of the city and introducing new gods. Right. And, you know, everyone probably reads that, or at least non-philosopher people reads that as strictly in the religious domain. But as we've been describing earlier about this spirit of chaos, you know, you could easily construe what's happening today as being people holding up a different god. Now, the religious people will say a false god. You and I might just say a different animus, a different spirit. But how could, you know, if, if one way of construing God is like the thing that most motivates your behavior and most orients your perspective. And in this, in the, how we've been exploring today's landscape, we're saying something other than truth and virtue and wisdom is there. It's the, the spirit of chaos, you know, the spirit, more relativism, whatever, but is, you know, couldn't you easily just say, they're, they're, you know, they're operating with different gods. And so in that case, I mean, there's so many corollaries to Socrates today or Socrates back then and everyone who's being censored today, because one, people like yourself and other people who are counter narrative, counter status quo, who are saying, hey, guys, like what's happening is crazy. Or even if not that, like, let's you, you have one angle. Let's introduce another angle and let's see if we can triangulate on the truth a little bit better. And so that's corrupting so-called the minds of the youth because it's not the the dominant narrative. You're going off script and that's bad. And then you know more deeply perhaps you're introduce you're introducing ideas that might replace the so-called gods that are animating so many people in the world today. You know the god of progress or the god of liberalism or the god of globalism or the god of statism or the god of transgenderism or whatever it is you playing that role of offering a different perspective and trying to balance things out such that you might move more effectively towards truth is in effect, or at least from their perspective, threatening the gods that they are most aligned to, or that they are most in control of. So it's like, you know, history doesn't repeat, but it rhymes, right? I mean, it's, a, it's so perfectly uh, analogous to what happened to Socrates, to what's happening to so many people in the world today. Yeah, absolutely. And it's uh, remarkable to see because it does show you that there's a sort of continuity to this issue or to this problem. If we can use something that happened so long ago, somewhere far away, and see that it maps almost one-to-one -one or so closely onto, or that we can use it as a way to describe what's happening now, then 
you know, the additional thought is, what else can we learn from the life of Socrates and from Plato's writings if we learn about the risks and threats of the persecuted inquirer, the way that the city is going to defend its ideology by hook or by crook, all the way up to killing and imprisoning, uh, imprisoning its political enemies, the way that it treats uh, free thinkers as thought criminals, all of these kinds of things. They're hugely relevant lessons and topical lessons that we learn from reading Plato and from the life of Socrates. But yeah, I mean, exactly. The Today's city, today's political community has its own gods, absolutely. There's somehow strange, weird gods in some cases, novel foreign gods, and it's defending them and it's persecuting those who are questioning them, just like it persecuted Socrates for not for doing more than for questioning. Because what they really hated about him was that he would put the question to people. And when he had a conversation with them, it became obvious that they didn't really understand what they were saying. And nobody wanted to be shown up by this guy. And, you know, they're, that's very similar now. You know, you can't look at the Matt Walsh. I'm not taking him as the perfect example of this, but in a very kind of uh, comic quasi-Socratic way when he was asking everybody, what is a woman? Because what is is a nice Socratic question. And they were, not that it's, you know, everybody's, he's an example or that kind of inquiry is an example. Any serious, thoughtful inquiry today is, especially when it runs against the grain of the orthodoxies and ideologies of the moment, poses a threat and is exposed to the Socratic fate. Mm -hmm. You know, I think this is why so many people today characterize what's going on. And we talked about, you know, kind of a reversion or, or renewed interest in theology and religion. I think a lot of people characterize what's, or I've heard a lot of people characterize what's going on as a spiritual war almost. And again, on the surface to a secular mind, you're like, Okay, I'm not going to listen to you because that's just an absurd notion. But in you know, in the context of what we just described with what happened with Socrates and what's happening now, and the concepts that we've been throwing around here today, I mean, it is, you know, it's it's more worthy of consideration because when you really think about what where those spirits we've been discussing come from, you may have other names for them, forces or wherever the, these things are emanating from. You know, again, you peel it all back and it's like, well. Maybe it's, and this is why one religions extend out the archetypes to the extreme, I think for, for that purpose, to make it more easy to comprehend. But people today would say there's a satanic force operating in the world. And they'll point to different things that are emblematic of that, whether it's pop culture nonsense or status nonsense, or even the trans thing. And they'll say, you know, see, you know, that's a satanic thing. And again, they maybe they don't do themselves any favor in the in the context of modern discourse because that word still carries too much baggage but if you know in the context of the discussion we've been having today it kind of makes a little bit more sense right if we're saying that spirit is kind of that amorphous animating motivating force that you can't real really nail down but is apparent in people's behavior and somehow constitutes kind of the nexus of your perspective then, you know, and we've been discussing what happens when you put that in the nexus, maybe it's Socrates versus this in the nexus, maybe it's Christ, mm -hmm. maybe it's this in the nexus, maybe it's the state, maybe it's this in the nexus, you yourself as ego as the ultimate thing, what kind of spirit bubbles up from that? You know, what kind of behaviors bubble up from, from that sort of orientation? And in that context, maybe the idea that we're in a so-called spiritual war today is not that far off because it's requiring such a fundamental reframing or shift in how you see the world and how you orient your 
and, and determine your own behavior, that that maybe is a, a valid way of um, describing just at what level of depth these processes are taking place at. Yeah, I think there's something to be gained by formulating the, the issue that way. So Dugan, this Russian thinker that I work on, he's somebody, for example, who has done that. He has a multi, he's got like 24 volume book series called No-O Machia. And Machia is like conflict, war, battle, struggle. And the No-O part means nous, which is a Greek word for intellect. And he has this model that there are three different fundamental modes of world interpretation that are always at war with one another throughout history. History is not a progressive linear development from barbarism, savagery to civilization, from prejudice and myth to science. It's a constant conflict between these different, as you put it, kind of nexus points, starting points, configurations of the world. He calls them the Apollonian, using the Greek mythical figures, Apollonian, Dionysian, and Sibelian. Sibylle is the great mother. She has a, her own corresponding mythology, which interestingly involves a cult of male castration. So par partially why he thinks that we live under the Sibelian um, world now. But anyways, in all of this, he has a view that political history, military history, wars that take place on earth, the whole realm of human affairs is a reflection of the battle of angels, demons, and spirits. It's, they're intimately related but higher than the realm of human political action is the realm of the battle of the spirits, angels, and demons. And they themselves, this is an additional step that rarely is seen, so it's nice that his model puts it there. He says that battle itself represents this even higher struggle within the realm of nous between these different fundamental modes of world interpretation, how you think about material, time, chaos, order, the idea, the spirit itself, so that you can interpret politics in light of religion, spirituality, uh, angelology, demonology, and all the rest of it, and interpret that in an even possibly uh, bigger context, it just goes to show we cannot separate a human life from what it's committed to. And you can't fail to see that some human lives are committed to positions that we can characterize as religious or spiritual, whether because they aim high or because they aim low. And that just implicates the human world in the divine or vice versa, it implicates the divine world in the human. And therefore, I think that ability to translate from the language of spiritual warfare to the language of human and political affairs, even if a person is cautious to take that as literally true, it's still useful to be able to state it, you know, to be able to translate the language from one to the other, because after all, these realms are um, co-implicating. And so I do think that's a helpful way of, uh, of seeing it and of looking at it. Of all the authors that I personally know, study, and work on, Dugan is the one who's gone furthest in that direction. And a lot of his characterizations I found very helpful. One, for example, is he has said, the real debate right now is between the Great Awakening and the Great Reset. The Great Reset, people are familiar with, the idea of a Great Reset, the resetting the economies, and in fact, overcoming the human identity as such, a total super technological makeover of human nature and human existence so that it is completely uh, so that it has cut itself off from all traditional sources of guidance entirely. In other words, for him, the great reset is everything that we're against in some sense. Okay. Everything that um, looks like a war on human spirit mm. and the great awakening is the one that says, no, the human spirit will not be conquered, will not be destroyed. 
and can't be erased from the face of the earth. And that that sets up, again, a quasi-religious or, you know, a seriously spiritual battle between the forces that are against the last shreds of human dignity and human uh, nature, or those that want to assert it, fight for it, defend it, whether they are this religion or that religion, whether they are theologians or philosophers, the great dividing line is between the war on the human essence or the defense of the human, you know, the defense of the human being. So, yeah, in other words, for sure, we need to take that into account. Otherwise, we're left with merely power, merely, you know, but no, power itself is not something merely. Power itself is already implicated in the realm of whether it's uses for good or for evil. And power itself is a kind of, can be a kind of demonic force in the lives of human beings if it's unmoored from its proper master. Right. And I, I think one of the things that restrains power, or let's say directs it to fruitful ends rather than destructive ends, is the ethical or moral parameters that are imposed upon it. Now, again, I mean, it's the story of history, right? Like that's always been recognized, but how do you impose parameters that can't be corrupted or, or overcome by the machinations of power, right? How do you stop corruption? And, you know, I, I don't know if we'll have time to explore uh, Bitcoin today, but obviously that's one of my answers to that question. But what I want to ask you re regarding what you just said is, what do you make of Dugan's framing of the world today in that way? And you know, kind of a larger, potentially difficult question, thinking as much as you do about all the different things we've been discussing and much more, you know, how people have commented on social issues throughout history, obviously a huge interest in political philosophy for yourself. I'm sure you've studied history extensively. I mean, what do you think is the solution or resolution or even a directionally improved path from where we are today to somewhere we, that you would deem better than where we are today? Okay, so to the first question, uh, I find Dugan's division between the Great Awakening and the Great Reset to be a helpful one, because even though it's simplistic to divide all of the relevant forces and all of the relevant factors into a simple dichotomous division, still, when I read that book and I made several videos on it and I've been interviewed about it before, it captures a lot, in my view, of what's at stake generally in the culture war, in the zeitgeist, and so on. And it also has the benefit, in my view, of not being so particular about which exact groups are on this side or that side, that it doesn't splinter into a small sectarian, you know, are you this or are you that? It's like, no, look, if you think that human nature is an obstacle and that only technical liberation can help us move into a post-human future, Okay, this is where you belong. And if you think that human great reset. has a soul or in some sense needs to be defended against the forces that are trying to make us into something post-human, then you belong here. And all of the other differences are secondary compared to that fundamental one. So I think that could be helpful. The, his other models, Noomachia, they get much more nuanced in their distinctions and I find that to be helpful too. So it doesn't mean I agree with everything he says at all, obviously. Whenever we take somebody seriously, there are going to be things that we learn from, and it doesn't mean that we've accepted everything uh, from A to Z. I will say that there's a troubling implication, one troubling implication among many. If you think that there's a relationship between 
political human social life on one hand and how we think about ideas and metaphysics, theology and the gods and all of that, then we always kind of have to remember when we're up here in the realm of the metaphysical, the suffering down here in the human realm is very real. Like you may say, I, I don't, you know, I'm on team this and I'm not on team that. And metaphysically, I think Plato's better than Hegel. Okay. And that has a political dimension where people may actually be dying or, you know, it, war, metaphysical war is kind of metaphorical. Physical war is kind of literal, you know, in a physical war, you can die, your friends can die, your life can be torn apart. In a metaphysical war, it's still ideas, concepts, conversations, even if they're real. So you see what I mean? There's that sort mm -hmm. of disjunction, even though I personally have gained so much from and very attracted to the idea of a close link between politics and metaphysics. I'm always reminded and have to be reminded by the fact that from the point of view of actual human suffering, you feel that much more in politics than in metaphysics, needless to say, however closely related they may be. So that's one of the risks, I would say, of going too far in that direction, because you can become so convinced of something metaphysically and fail to realize that if you really carried it through and you carried it through on analogy with its political life or in connection with its political life, real people would really suffer. And the question of human suffering has to be taken into account. So, you know, there, there's really a war, you know, between Russia and Ukraine, and there really might be a war between Russia and the United States, or between two other countries. And when you try to justify that on metaphysical principles, you can't become um, hardened to the real human suffering. That's what I'd say about that. As for my views, okay, I don't claim to be any sort of uh, doctor of social and political affairs in terms of offering solutions for what heals us. The authors that I teach that I love in whose spirit I work and, you know, somehow I've dedicated myself to um, walking in their footsteps and to and emulating them, okay? They had in common the view that education plays a crucial role. Somehow education is of decisive importance. And education means that we have to return to the serious formulation and careful and cautious and respectful study of all of the questions that concern a good human life, a good human society, a good human community. In other words, it's cautionary against a narrow-minded, overly ideologized, overly uh, zealous, ideologically overzealous like, what's the problem that we face today, in my view, from the point of view of education? Overzealous ideological liberalism, which treats any possible alternative to liberalism as fascism, hence as evil. And you follow that reasoning through a little bit, hence as, you know, uh, open to annihilation itself, right? Because if, if opposition to liberalism is fascist, if fascists are evil, and if everybody wanted to kill baby Hitler, then the equivalent is, you know, kill the baby fascists before they mm. get a chance to become the next Hitler. And so that spirit is certainly part of the animus of today, right? Like don't have kids and, you know, all that stuff. 100%. So, you know, opposition to ideological uh, zealotry, and it's small, it's, you know, it's not a huge democratic solution. It's not a very popular solution. It's not something that I expect to transform millions of people around the world, but here and there to awaken people to the idea of a genuine education here and there to reacquaint people with the fact that ideology lobotomizes our intellect and that our intellect and our ability to inquire humanizes us. 
to sort of reverse the effects of the amputation of the human soul that has been going on. All of that is where I personally put my efforts, and that's what I love. And the history of political philosophy and philosophy is how I do that. It's one small way. It's not for everybody, and it's not the only solution. Other yeah. people are spreading the light of a theological message in the world, and you know, may they succeed in doing so as far as it is helpful. And other people are fighting on the political front or on the legislative front. Chris Rufo, for example, obviously very active in his own way, and Jordan Peterson, very active in his own way. So there are many different possible points of opposition to the spirit of confusion, to clown world, to the chaos of postmodernity. But the one that for me is most fitting with my aptitudes, my interests, and my loves is uh, teaching people the history of philosophy and initiating them into the spirit of genuine inquiry. Again, all in order to oppose the ever more evident ideological lobotomization that we see around us. Yeah. I, I mean, I think that's a tremendously valid approach. You know, the, the silly way that I often conceptualize it is, you know, you, you pass someone on the street or, you know, the guy who's always asking you for change or the homeless guy or whatever. And you think like, well, I'm not going to change his life and I'm not going to, you know, revert homelessness or solve home homelessness or whatever. So I'm, I'm just going to ignore it. And there's exceptions to all these examples, of course, you know, but if you, you pass that guy and he seems genuine and he's disabled, you know, it's a, my, my thinking with all such cases is all that may be true, but this is happening on my path. Right. And so why don't I act charitable or what I don't act generous or compassionate or do what I think is right in the case of other instances, it might just be simply speaking my mind as truthfully as I can in whatever circumstance. And is that not you know, that might not be the most that any of us can do, but that should at least be a minimum of what we all do. And it seems to be the case that if we all took that approach, it would already be a long way toward rectifying a lot of the issues that we confront. Because what we fail, like, oftentimes the world that we rail against, right, the big corporations, the banking interests, the pharmaceutical lobby, the agricultural seed Monsanto people, all this kind of stuff, we fail to recognize that they exist purely, or they exist primarily because of all of our each emergent, our each of our individuals behave, individual behaviors taken emergently, you know, to that extent, right? That's what happens when all of our individual behaviors are concentrated in one place, you know, and so that's that's what we get. If if everyone acted differently you would get different institutions, you would get different service and product providers, all that kind of stuff. And if each of us acted differently in our life to tell the uncomfortable truths when we felt we were going to be, you know, ostracized or to, you know, chip into somebody's well-being or fill in the blank, that would go a tremendously long way to improving the circumstance of the world, in my opinion. And, you know, as you're saying what you're saying, and I, I'm probably coming off as more pro-religion and and less pro philosopher in this discussion. And I have no particular ax to grind. I'm just, you know, kind of uh, noticing things that crop up in my own mind as we're having this discussion. But I think part of the reason why perhaps religion has been more sticky and maybe even more useful. And again, there's a, there's a flip side to this argument, of course, but in those times when things seem to go off the rails, maybe we're in those times right now, it seems like it, and you want to inject more reason and logic and truth into an environment that is you know, rapidly devolving and has a, uh, uh, you know, doesn't have enough of those things integrated into it, let's say. Um, 
with philosophy, you can't really just hold up a cross and say, be gone, demon, you know, and, and the religious domains obviously have that power. And there's kind of, for many reasons, right? People know what that cross means. People know what demon means in that context. People know that you're, you're, you're drawing an ethical boundary right there immediately. And you're drawing, you know, you're, you're, uh, you're staking out two sides of that. Whereas philosophy is much more nuanced and it's, you know, it's not as black and white. And, and, you know, for that reason alone, I think uh, that's probably why it's been, people use it less to resolve the problems that they confront because it seems like, it seems like not as simple an instrument to use. Um, also, you know, when you were saying um, this notion of there's the metaphysics and then there's the politics and we have to, we have to appreciate the real world consequences of these metaphysical discussions and their implementations in the world. And I, I do think also, again, the church has a lot of baggage. It's been used to do a lot of bad things, but it's also one of the fundamental reasons for the church, at least as far as I've been able to discern, or at least as, as far as some uh, adherents of the church proclaim, is that one of the main raison d'etre of the church, in addition to stewarding the faith, is to act out the charity that's a critical component of the message of Christ, let's say. And so I, I think that is part of its way of accounting for the suffering that you just alluded to, because no matter what metaphysics you implement, let's say, there's going to be suffering. Life is suffering. You can't control everything. Chaos is ever-present. So it doesn't matter how properly you you construct a society or you orient your perspective, your own suffering and the suffering of others is guaranteed. And I, I feel like part of the reason for the institution of something like the church and its charitable works is to say nothing's perfect. And so let's not only act out the faith, but let's also account for the inevitable suffering that is going to come and let's make that a, a primary component of our enterprise and again philosophy because it's more distributed it's not as institutionalized it doesn't have that same directive it doesn't have that same ethos it doesn't have that type of organization to even execute you know an objective like that mm -hmm. um so that's just a couple of thoughts from, from yeah no for sure i think uh you're you're right about that in um in no way do I conversely, you know, mean to set up, you know, when I talk about philosophy, it's just as a small, subtle reminder of this kind of uh, something that we no longer see as philosophy or no longer know as philosophy, you know, this sort of peak, either the Socratic original or the Heideggerian exaltation in questioning. But in no way do I mean at all to even remotely denigrate the value and the significance and the decency and the morality of a religious life and of organized religion. Very far from it. Like I said, in my own household, we have a Jewish tradition. We're very aware in our own way of all of the many um, benefits of Jewish religious life. I have many good Christian friends who send me things to read about uh, Christian theology, incidentally, and how it relates to the other concerns and debates that I'm interested in. And I teach students who are Muslims and for whom Islam has made a tremendous uh, been a North star and a pole star and a sense of meaning and significance for them in their lives. So there's just no question, you know, the, the virtues and the benefits both for oneself and for one's community of religious faith and a religious life, one that has actually the proof in the pudding, one that puts itself into practice, 
and doesn't just flatter itself about its belief, I would say that's absolutely a good thing. And, you know, I have people in my own life, again, who are completely non-philosophical and deeply religious. And I see the difference that it's made to them, the difference that it's made to them as people and how they become very, uh, how could you put it? Um, They become, they genuinely care about other human beings in a way that is obviously deeper than they did before they became religious. Mm-hmm. And so all of those transformations, the, the moral and the practical are, I'd say, indisputable, you know, and they're good. They're a blessing. They're brilliant and they're amazing. So I also don't mean to set up, you know, a rigid opposition. The There's no question. If we weigh on balance, you know, whose deeds, I would say, you don't have groups of philosophers or departments of philosophy getting together and genuinely caring for other human beings in the way that a religious congregation uh, or a religious mission does. They do it in a different way. They're, you know, but it's not comparable. So philosophy is philosophy, you know, in some sense, its primary interest is not moral. And therefore it does not even a substitute really for religion. It's just, there's it, there's something else going on there, but yeah, the church faith, religion, belief, as I say, I've seen it in my own life. I've seen it in the lives of my students and I've seen it in the lives of my friends that it can be a matter, it can change everything. It can change everything for the better. Some people have had bad experiences, maybe in some cases change things for the worse, but on balance and by design, I think it's really meant to bring us closer to the life we're supposed to live. Yeah. And I don't mean to be either equating the two or, you know, criticizing it, you know, your approach or anything like that. These are just purely thoughts that are emerging as we're having this discussion, but it, you know, back to that idea, whether it's the cave, right. And the person who tries to go back. I mean, I think the reason why it exists, right. We have to kind of appreciate why anything exists as it does in the world today. And some things we might identify and be like, Ugh, like that probably shouldn't mm-hmm. exist. And others like, Oh, okay. It does can't identify exactly why it shouldn't. So maybe it should. And why, what might the reason for that be? And maybe it's the case that philosophy is that, you know, we alluded to the counterbalance earlier, maybe it's kind of the outsider effect. You know, it's that, it's that thing that just keeps the, the theological realm, not only honest, but obviously there's been a lot of overlap between philosophers and theologians throughout the ages. And they've, they've refined each other's thinking tremendously. And, and, you know, that philosophy has been integrated into theology to get, gain a b- greater appreciation for the concepts that they deal with. And theology has been brought over by the philosophers to, to do the very same thing, you know, so perhaps they, they continue to mutually exist, albeit in a different uh, gravity or balance or significance, because they ultimately are required for one another. They enhance one another. They keep the other honest or in check or, or they stave off corruption to some degree. And so, you know, perhaps it's not an either or, perhaps it's a both and, and it's just a matter of determining, you know, where you think is most, you know, valid or just or truthful to, to fall on that balance between the two. Yeah, I look at Leo Strauss mentioned before, he said it's the vitality of Western civilization that it's faced with these questions of how best to relate theology to philosophy. If there was no tension, there would be no vitality. Right. If it was fully resolved in the question of one or the other, then somehow there wouldn't be that drive. There wouldn't be that mutual influence, that beneficially mutual influence of theology and philosophy. So I think that is uh, it's crucial that it's crucial that both 
sides, as it were, or all, you know, whoever person throws himself, that he puts himself into it fully, remains open to the other one, and can deepen their mutual influence, and whether from one side or from the other. You know, that's, uh, that I would say is definitely, definitely the case. Philosophy is deeply enriched by the fact of theology and by the history of theology. And I would hope, and I think it's incontrovertible to say the opposite is true as well, that theology has been deeply enriched by philosophy. And even though I think you can make that commitment, like we've been describing and the benefits of doing so, whether you, you know, recognize it or not, that question is always extreme, is always necessary. It's always ever present, right? Because you'll never have complete knowledge and it doesn't matter what domain you're describing. And so you have to recognize that there's that question. And so again, it's the same sort of thing. It's balancing that commitment with the elevation or the uh, persistence of the necessity for the unknown and for the question. Because as you say, I mean, if anything was perfectly known, I I feel like consciousness would just collapse on itself or something. The, the, the example, I, the silly example I often use is like, if we just knew there was a brick wall at the end of space somewhere, you know, notwithstanding the, the obvious questions like, well, who put the brick wall there and what's behind mm-hmm. it? But if we just, if there was an end to it, I, I feel like we feel trapped, even though we'd have, you know, basically infinite space between us and the limitation, knowing that there's a hard and fast stop to our potential and to our, you know, capacity and ambition and everything. I feel like consciousness would, would just fail. It'd be like, you know, error or something. And I feel like the same is true with with theology, religion, and philosophy. It's It's striking that balance between knowing enough and having enough faith to commit, but also maintaining a reverence for the unknown and the question that continues to revivify that thing that you're committing to. And it seems to be the case that that's basically what you just said in terms of Strauss's uh, opinion on on the the two domains. Yeah, absolutely. Let me just share something um, that you may find interesting in how I think about these things from my own life, which is that before I ever studied philosophy, meaning before I did, you know, philosophy 101 as an undergraduate student, before I really started reading the canonical texts of philosophy and all of that, my main area of interest, like my main existential concern, okay, the thing that was most important to me that I was reading at the time was mysticism, mm. which you could say is a you know, religious or theological experience of the unification of the soul with God, or at least of a special sort of proximity of the soul to God. And it just so happened in my case, again, this wasn't by design, as far as I can tell, it's by accident, as far as I can tell, is that I was reading mystics of different religious traditions. So I was very interested in and uh, sympathetic to people who wrote about this intimate union with God. And there's mm-hmm. some in Christianity who do so, some in Islam, and some in Judaism who do so each in their own way. And the idea that there was some peak spiritual human experience that a person could have union with God, mystical union with God, and that they were writing about it each in their own way. That was very intriguing and appealing to me. So even before, and I carried that through to my interest in philosophy, there's always a trace of my original love of the mystical experience as mystics themselves write about it, that carried over into philosophy. So in some sense, what I'm trying to say is there's even another way in which philosophy and theology are not so distinct, that there's some peak experience where they coalesce in this weird way. For me, they did, as I say, through the role of mysticism. And then one other thing, just on this topic of philosophy and theology, when I was young, I grew up in a household that didn't have 
religion present in it. Okay, my family's from the former Soviet Union, and they decided roughly to raise us not as atheists, but just with we religion wasn't something we talked about. So we didn't get either theism or atheism. It just wasn't something we talked about. And then at one point, my mom became Christian. I won't go into the details. They don't really matter for the purposes of what I'm about to say, but she became Christian. And I was a teenager. I rebelled against her becoming Christian. So I picked up, this is again, before my interest in philosophy proper, I remember very clearly, I got a book called uh, The Case for Atheism, because I was going to refute my mother's interest in Christianity and religion. Mm -hmm. I was going to get the case for atheism and then, you know, like a rebellious teenager refuted and, you know, whatever, problem solved or I win. Uh And uh, the amazing thing for me, one of the points where theology and philosophy coalesced very clearly, even then as a teenager, I read this book and it had an argument that struck me. It was an argument against God for atheism, an argument. So it's still kind of in the realm of argumentation, reasoning, you know, as opposed to an active leap of faith or something. But the argument struck me as very bad, a bad argument for atheism. And it had the opposite effect of making me open to the religious side of the equation. You know, so I have, you know, I read the book to refute my family members new religious conversion. It had the opposite, completely opposite effect. For me, it denigrated the atheist's case because it was so bad. Mm-hmm. So, you know, ultimately somehow even though there's something to these divisions, for sure, you know, life of theoretical understanding, life of practical uh, guidance, and so on. Nevertheless, in a person's own life, you know, in the case of my life, they become so intertwined, the interest in mysticism, the refutation of atheism by accident, which threw me into the arms of philosophers interpreted in a religious and mystical spirit. You know, when I read Plato's Republic, the first thing that I noticed wasn't even the politics, it was that he's a mystic. That's the way I read the book, you know? Mm-hmm. And when I read Heidegger, I read him as infused with this divine inspiration. So ultimately, again, maybe some of that is a peculiarity of my own uh, intellectual autobiography, but the, the presence of reasoning about God and not just reasoning about, like I say, mysticism isn't just reasoning. Mysticism is your soul is touched by the presence of God. It's So I may have, you know, in the course of our conversation, I talk a lot about reasons, argumentation, intellect, but the fact is, uh, I always see it in this close proximity with the question of God, the divine, and the experience of God in the divine, predating philosophy. You know, mysticism all by itself is an amazing, amazing phenomenon to study, uh, and not to mention to expose oneself to um, that kind of religious experience. So I just thought I'd add that, you know, the little autobiographical twist for what it's worth. Well, I was actually going to ask you about mysticism because you referenced it a bunch. And I know you you wrote a paper in your undergrad, which you covered on your channel, which was basically looking at philosophical mysticism. And I, I actually think it's perfectly relevant to what we've been discussing thus far, because I, you know, basically share everything that you just said. And I believe that, you know, it, it's obviously mystical experiences are ineffable, you know, and I think everyone would would kind of confirm that. But try as we might to use the language that's at least the closest approximation, we would often, you you know, say like we've somehow, our soul has ascended to God, we've united with the all pervading spirit, we've, you know, dissolved into the love of the fabric of reality, you know, that's the kind of way you try to articulate it. But there's a, there's obviously a commonality of intent in, in all those attempts at communicating what's going on. And also historically, mystical traditions 
it seems to be the case, preceded organized religions, most likely by tens of thousands, if not hundreds of thousands of years. You know, archaic shamanism basically was, you know, a thing way earlier than any sort of semblance of organized religion, it seems. And, you know, we're having this discussion about philosophy versus theology, and there's many different kind of wrenches we could throw in the mix. And, it's, you know, it, maybe it's just as simple, or perhaps it seems to me that, so we have that capacity to unify with God, whatever that might be. And maybe in these mystical experiences, we get a particularly potent experience of that. And most people, you know, ineffable, but most people say, wow, powerful, beneficial, unbelievable, just all those sorts of words. And is not these traditions, various religious traditions, and as you said, I mean, most religious traditions that we know today, like the big ones, they have a mystical element. You have Sufi in Islam, you have Kabbalah in Judaism. You have, I'm, I'm sure the corollaries exist in Christianity. Again, I'm not an expert in this, but same in all of them. They have their, under underbelly is the wrong word, but they have their compartment or their sect or whatever that's like the mystical component. And again, I think that's almost a necessity because it feeds into the more structured or institutionalized component. And it seems to me to be the case that these experiences exist and we're capable of having them spontaneously or intentionally induced. And the, the, the real, what we're confronted with is how do we bring down the elements of what that experience or that realm or that place has or is constituted by or, or its nature? How do we bring them down and distill them into our behavior and intersubjective life, i.e. society and culture and that kind of stuff? And it's hard for me to think that that's not the genesis of religion and basically the enterprise that both philosophy and theology are engaged in. Okay, there's this realm of ultimate virtue, pure love, pure God, pure freedom, pure, you know, all that stuff taken together to its maximal extent. And you can experience it. And it's reality dissolving, ego dissolving, whatever. How do you bring that into one's day-to-day -day life most fruitfully, most beneficially? And if you can do that, I mean, should you construe it in any other terms than saying, you know, I'm following God's example, or I'm attempting to embody God, or I'm attempting to create the kingdom of God on earth in a sense, because I'm trying to take those principles and transmute them into a form that's not metaphysical, but physical. And is this not why and how religions inevitably emerge and emerge in the way that they do? Because it's it's that attempt to distill from yeah, from the metaphysical to the physical. And of course, it's going to look differently because that, those are two different realms. But I think there's a recognition of the, the value and benefit of undertaking that enterprise or making that attempt that makes it so sticky and why it seems like human beings are just wired to recognize the importance of, of that experience or that realm or that force and continue to try to capitulate and recapitulate and erect structures that allow us to pull more of it down into our lives. And of course, we go off course, and we fail, and we make mistakes, but it seems to always snap back to that, or, or at least that we never lose that, the drive to engage in that enterprise. And I think, you know, maybe it sounds like uh, we're suggesting in this conversation, and I think many would kind of agree that the course of the, the 20th century has maybe been this process, but we've 
maybe we have gone further away. Like we, we, we've kind of, uh, our efforts at distillation have not been very successful. And we're now recognizing that we've created a poison and not a potion to use somewhat metaphorical language. And we're trying to determine where we went wrong and realign with our capacity to, to engage in that distillation process. Yeah, there's, I think that's a big, uh, a big part of it, but I will say that some of the old problem of the allegory of the cave and some of the old problem of Socrates in a way recurs because the mystics, even though they have this experience, claim to have it, talk about it, and it's worth reading and can be very moving to read about the mystical experience and try to put oneself in that state and all the rest of it. It's still true that they sometimes have been seen as themselves uh, heterodox or have been seen as, um, you know, they've been cut off sometimes by their co-religionists because it can seem almost blasphemous uh, to say that you had a union with God or a vision with God, or that you have ascended beyond where most people ascend. So the whole problem of, uh, of how you bring the light into the cave, so to speak, and of how much you can do that and of what all the obstacles to it are, they recur, uh, even in the case of the mystic, interestingly enough. And another thing is that often it's the case that for the non-mystics, the message is filtered through a uh, law let's say, laws of conduct and laws of right living. Whereas in some sense, the mystic transcends the realm of the legal. Mysticism is not always, I mean, sometimes it's seen as orthogonal to or transcending the realm of the legal. So there too, you have the whole question of the split between the political and the transpolitical, the legal and the mystical. So in the case of the history of political philosophy, the conflict is always between philosophy and law. In the case, I would say of um, mystical political theology, it's the split between politics and mysticism. And how much can you bring the kingdom of heaven to earth as a mystic if you also are dealing with non-mystics and with people who see you as a heretic or with people who see you as a blasphemer? So I was just talking to, to somebody not long ago about an example from Islamic mysticism, where there's a person that I regard as authoritative as a mystic, but he's regarded by legalistic Islam or let's say by, you know, by non-mystical Islam as a um, as a heretic. So it's once again, not so straightforward, but it's that similarity somehow between the conflict of the mystic and the non-mystic and the conflict of the philosopher and the non-philosopher, you know, that whole realm offers nice opportunities for trying to think the problem through, but for sure, we have always similar problems. There's some element of human life that apparently has been denigrated and that is yearning to reassert itself, whether that's faith, whether it's knowledge of philosophy, or whether it's a mystical experience. And then you have the additional problem, how do the people who want that now reinscribe it, not only in their personal lives, which is one thing, but also in their social and political lives, which is another thing. And you can do that in sub-political communities like congregations and groups, but what happens when it gets up to the level of the political order or the political organization then you have a fundamental question and problem. Uh, can there be such a thing as a mystical political order? Right. You know, what are the prospects today of a truly religious political order? Not to mention the impossibility of a truly philosophical uh, political order. So, but yeah, this is, I think all of the different formulations we have and all of the ways that we're approaching it is there's very similar. Something's missing. People are yearning for it. They want it. 
and they got to bring it into their personal lives, into their communal lives, and into their political lives. But it's one thing to say and another thing to do, not to mention the huge number of perplexities and problems that go again, go together with that project. Yeah, I totally agree. And it makes me think like, if we could just instill in all of those people, regardless of, of who their God is, broadly speaking, just don't kill the heretics, you know, like don't kill Socrates, don't kill Jesus, don't kill whomever, like, because then at least the, the voice is there, the, the discussion can be had, you know, there's a chance that these things can be ironed out a little bit. But if you just kill the heretics, if you cancel, dehumanize, get rid of everyone who you disagree with, then, you know, we're, we're obviously doomed to the same sort of loop. Um, but to, to bring it back to what's happening today, you know, as we close off here, um, earlier you said, you know, not basically not everybody want, not everybody wants to, or can wake up sufficiently to leave the cave. And I, obviously a big part of that is our perspective on the world is where we derive our comfort and our safety and our sanity and so many things, you know, and it's obviously a very complex matrix of things of known, unknown threat, you know, not threat, you know, all so many different things that make that up. And we capitulate it through the family that we've come up through and the culture and the associations and the conditioning and all that kind of stuff is involved. But we revere our perspective because it is that thing that helps us move through the world without, you know, freaking the fuck out and, and you know, not being able to contend with it. And so when you challenge that to such a degree, not just to shake it and change a few elements, but when you shake it from its foundation and the whole thing is that threat of dissolving, well, I, I think that's why people are so resistant to ideas that have that potential. They say like that if I believe that to be true, or if that were true, it would be way too disruptive to my perspective that the world would descend, my world would descend into chaos once again. And I don't know if I have the, the energy, the stamina, the will, the, the strength, the courage to build it back up based on, you know, whatever truth or premise you're introducing to it. And so I reject it and I reject you. And maybe I even kill you, as you said earlier, because you're way too dangerous for, for that very reason. Because if what you said does actually is actually true or enough people believe it to be true that I have to change. That's, you know, that's too dangerous. That's corrupting the youth, let's say. So you got to go. But in the last two years, it's been my observation that the whole, like the, well, the, the lies and the corruption and the misinformation and the deceit and the dishonesty and the lack of integrity and all those things have been so on display for the world that a lot of people that I don't mean to be too disparaging here, but let's just call them previously, you know, cave dwellers, shadow watchers, you know, however we want to characterize them, they actually paused and they said, something's not right here, right? The, the shadows are off or they, they, they start to look around. They take the proverbial red pill. And, uh, and so is, this seems to be the process of more people so-called waking up. And now again, this is a very somewhat of a chaotic process because when the things that you previously trusted start to dissolve, then there's a, there's a vacuum, right? And what do you fill it with? And how do you gain back that, that confidence and that security and that comfort that you had before? And I think that's the process that a lot of people are engaging in right now. And as we said before, part of that is a relook, you know, 
take another look at religion, for example. But do you think that that is happening? Do you think the last two or three years have been a catalyst for that? And, you know, where do you think directionally it's heading? You know, if, if that is happening on a perhaps a larger scale than happened than has happened in our lifetimes, let's say. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So it does seem to be the case that more people are openly suspicious of things that before they had taken for granted. Okay. Because as you said, all of the examples of being blatantly lied to and so on have made people mistrust what they had taken on authority before. That's true. Seems to be the case. So people are more interested now in trying to find new sources of information, new guidance to replace their old security, which has lost its security with something new. That also seems to be the case. Does that mean that uh, you know, they may run into some other model of the world that they take as secure and that they leave unquestioned? So they may be replacing a cave that no longer offers them with security and no longer offers them security. They may replace it with another cave that offers them security. Cave is not meant to be disparaging. Everybody lives in one. You know, we all are live and die in one. All it means is that there are certain opinions and, and uh, authorities that we take for granted. But the possibility of sometimes, you know, poking our head out and subjecting them to, uh, you know, getting a deeper understanding of things doesn't mean that we're liberated from the cave forever. It just means for a moment, you know. So if 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 all of the current orthodoxies and authorities and institutions everything that gave a sense of normality is shaken, which seems to be the case. People need some new footing and they'll find it in many different places. Not everybody's going to find it in religion. Some people are going to find it in conspiracy. And when I say conspiracy, I mean here genuine conspiracy. I don't mean what gets right. called conspiracy. Some people are going to find it in subcultures of subcultures of subcultures that are very strange. And that maybe you and I don't even know about, you know, mm -hmm. people will find, people will look for something that gives them a sense of identity, a sense of purpose, and a sense of stability. It doesn't mean they're going to leave the cave. It means they're going from one organized pattern of life that no longer works to some other organized pattern of life that is able to fulfill their needs, provide them with security, understanding, meaning, predictability, and all of that. But I do think there's a sense in which you are very right that a lot of things that were a consensus are no longer a consensus. And whenever that's the case, there's the possibility of a genuine questioning, of a genuine reorientation of actually raising questions that we've been taking for granted we've been taking for granted for too long. And so one part of the population is going to be substituting, you know, their one cave for another cave, but the idea that there's the possibility of something more, that there's a intellectual fer ferment fervent, you know that there's a moment yeah, yeah. where something is possible that hasn't been possible before a post-war consensus, liberal consensus, you know, all of that kind of thing, that the world is changing in a way that offers an opportunity, a new opportunity. I think that is right. How, who takes it, how they take it, how it shakes out, what it ends up looking like, that I don't know. But is there some sort of uh, tear in the fabric or, you know, some sort of fertile moment for genuine thoughtfulness? Yes. Uh, I wouldn't bet all my money on the fact that people go rushing into that opportunity on mass, but the fact that it's there for anybody is a good thing. It's one of, you know, it's, it's, um, it's always been the case that together with kind of chaos and even together with corruption and together with the loss of the old order, 
is the genuine possibility of insight, innovation, discovery, creativity, and it goes together with, you know, they go together. So um, you can only hope that we get more out of the insight and innovation side of the request of the equation than we lose from the collapse, chaos and disorder side of it. Well, it's a whole like, you know, a breakdown often leads to a breakthrough, or at least it can. And, you know, if we're kind of, it can, we, that's the important thing. Right. We, and we're, we've been suggesting it, how clownish and how inverse the world is today, you know, it would make sense that it's, it's so, uh, that, that circumstances become so extreme. It has inspired or requires that sort of breakthrough moment where people just each individually say like, nah, no, like something is clearly wrong and it's, you know, something is, is, what is it rotten in the state of Denmark? You know, something is, is rotten at the core and I need to figure out what that is. And, and I need to go for it. And I, to me, it's super exciting uh, because I mean, that's great, right? People are, are assessing a problem. I think diagnosing it as a problem, if not, if we can't say quote unquote correctly, because what would that even mean? But there, there's a sense that there's something off and 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 in their with their own intellect you know with their own discernment trying to figure out what the proper way forward is it's kind of a a rejection of consensus reality almost in a in a sense i mean you you need some of it to some degree but there's you know with the advent of the free flow of information and the of the internet and social media and all the different tools we have at our disposal and you know of course we can't ignore the impact of technology on how we think and how we organize ourselves. And we don't have time to dig into that chestnut today, but suffice it to say that it seems like there's a, a strong individualist sort of fervor happening where people are saying, I need to figure out what's truthful for myself and capitulate that. And that's the, the, the right way forward because unbeknownst to myself, I had, you know, subconsciously been following along with someone else's notion of truth for far too long. And now I'm confronted with the real and disappointing consequences of that circumstance. And so it's very exciting to me, you know, as much as you might scroll through Twitter and, and get in a doom loop, uh, I think it's, I think there's a lot of reason for hope of what's happening today. And, you know, I think conversations like this are a part of that, you know, that even these are something that can be had and that there's a certain degree of interest in them, I think is, 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 uh, bodes well for what phenomenon may be unfolding. Definitely. And I just want to add two things. Uh, one, you know, Tucker Carlson recently kicked off Fox now on Twitter and he's showing that you can use, uh, you can build an audience, you can use your audience through new channels of media communication and do extremely well, which from what I saw his episodes did extremely well. So that's mm -hmm. a big shift in the media landscape or we're right in the midst of it to see what its possibilities are and what that means for narrative control and what that means for freedom of expression, which is interesting. And then I'll say, you know, I built an online school of political philosophy, millermanschool.com. And there are other people who are doing it. They're teaching Greek and Latin or John Verveke, I see is doing a course on nihilism or beyond nihilism. I have friends who are doing their own online projects. And all of this is a response to the collapse of the mainstream institutions. We were in university. We loved academia. We saw that it took a left turn and we're able to use the new platforms and the new technologies to deliver high quality philosophical content, whether in the form of a podcast, like here, courses like I do in the school. That's also new. That wasn't always the case that you could do that. It wasn't always the case that you could experiment with it. And so it's very much, I would say, a period of experimentation, a period of these new modalities 
And it's amazing to be a part of it. It's great mm -hmm. to be contributing to it. And people who are listening should know there's a freedom that they have as well. You know, if a person has a passion about something and wants to try to test the waters in a way that you couldn't do before, you could get a camera and a microphone and record it, teach it, build an audience. So that new found freedom, which I think you're exactly right, that the technological side of the equation doesn't just lead in the dark dystopian direction of post-humanism, it also liberates a lot of creative potential, a lot of economic activity, a lot of expression, artistic and otherwise. And uh, as always, we have the choice. Are we going to go the road of dystopia ourselves? I think what you said about this, the decision that we make every moment of our own lives when we face a situation is going to help tilt the scales one way or another. So that's a beautiful thing about this moment. Again, I experience it in my school. I teach people who are, I could never have taught them in person because of where they live. They would never have wanted to go to a university because of their station in life. You know, they're too, they're past the university age, but they want to study Plato's Republic. And now they can be with me. I can be with them. And it's a beautiful thing. Just like mm -hmm. the fact that, you know, we're talking now and people are listening and hopefully enjoying it. Yeah. I mean, and Elon, love him or hate him. And, you know, even if you love him, everyone's imperfect. So they're going to make missteps but this idea of elevating the truth to i would say its rightful place and this is obviously something we've been discussing in this conversation but saying like look it's wrong that it, for, first of all the freedom to express yourself and then kind of subordinating yourself or elevating or how we want to construe that relationship but putting truth in the highest place seems to be you know and elon's actions have definitely influenced that to a large degree. I mean, he spent a shitload of money on, you know, commandeering this platform that was uh, not allowing for free expression and not maybe elevating truth. And just that example itself, I mean, that's tremendously impactful in people's lives to say, hey, look, you know, the richest man in the world or someone with a great amount of power could be doing other things or could be gaming the system just like everybody else. They're saying, no, no, it's way too important to just let truth and freedom go by the wayside. I mean, that disaster looms if that's the approach we take. And that is obviously the road that we've been on. So I'm going to spend a bunch of money on this stupid bird app so that you can express yourself. And so that we collectively have even a chance at orienting ourselves towards truth rather than whatever the power apparatus places in the highest place and, you know, forces us or tricks us into pursuing. And man, like, I, I think we're right on the precipice of that change. You know, you, you might even say that, you know, 2022 was that year where the inflection point where things, you know, reached their zenith, you know, fingers crossed. I don't want to jinx ourselves and have, you know, horrible, whatever imposed on us, you know, the psyops are everywhere, of course. And so you have to be uh, vigilant, but I'm hoping that that marks an inflection point where people are a little bit more autonomous with how they think about things. And they're a little bit more responsible for the information that they consume and how it how it influences their perspective on things and a little bit more responsible for the actions that they take and their relevance and impact on the world all of those things we've been discussing it seems to be the case that uh you know that that kind of change has happened and and now as you just said it's kind of incumbent upon us to take the ball and run with it you know whatever our interest may be or whatever may be relevant or meaningful to us to do that in our own lives to the extent that we can for the benefit of ourselves and our families and otherwise. And as, as a kind of a, it's actually not a silly example of it, but I, I've been following you on Twitter for a while. And I, I think you recently got into um, jujitsu. Am I yeah. correct in, in saying that? Yeah. 
you know, that's a, I, I, that's just an example. I think a lot of people, again, they're expanding their horizons or saying, you know, where might I have had deficiencies or what have I been neglecting or whatever, whether it's physical health or strength or formidability or whatever. And, uh, you know, we talked about religion, a lot of people going back to that. We talk about traditional forms of masculinity. Uh, a lot of people are even a lot of women are going back to these things and saying, you know, I'd like to be physically competent or, you know, be able to defend myself or what have you. And it, I think jujitsu is a really interesting one, especially for a philosopher, because I'm sure as you're realizing, as you go through the motions, as you get humbled on a daily basis and you keep, you know, forcing yourself to show up and go through that process, I imagine it, it's kind of enriching to the philosophical discourse because it, it's no small thing to put your actual physical body through that type of stress and confront that type of chaos on a daily or weekly basis. And I, I do think it informs how we think as all things that we pursue and all things that we deem meaningful and all the things that we're striving towards inevitably influence and are influenced by our philosophy and the, you know, the things that we elevate as the most orienting sort of uh, ideas in ourselves. And so I guess, you know, the question is how, how's that been going and has it influenced you know, your thinking on things at all? Yeah, it's been going really well. I am uh, borderline obsessed with it lately. <laughs> I think about it all the time. It's pretty amazing. As someone who was not very embodied, I would say, for most of my life, you know, who lived very much up in my head, it's been a completely transformative experience to have to, you know, roll with other guys on the mats and try to understand like the position of my body and what's happening there. It's completely different from just being in your head. You're fully embodied. Uh, it's been amazing. Like I made, I wrote an essay about it, made a video about it, but I, that was four months ago. I'm, I'm, I'm going regularly, I go three, four times a week. Wow. I've changed my diet. I've changed my fitness. I've changed my outlook. I'm watching videos on judo all day long and jiu-jitsu <laughs> for the stand-up, you know, for the stand-up game. So yeah, it's, uh, it's actually, <clears throat> it was a big surprise to me that I liked it as much as I did and that it's engaging my thoughts as much as it has been. Mm. It's yeah, it's been very good and new and strange and beneficial and I think you're right that for me and for other people, it's a part of partially self-improvement, partially self-fulfillment, pushing ourselves to see how far we can go, becoming more than we've been. Because like I said, it's one thing to be a disembodied intellect. It's another thing to be comfortable in your own body and have it coordinated and strong and fit and to understand what you're doing and things like that. Uh, it challenges me psychologically. Obviously, I get frustrated at times and elated at other times and it's given me a sense of what it means to progress slowly, <laughs> very slowly. Mm -hmm. uh, in my case, no, it's, it's, it's amazing. It puts everything to the test in such a real way, because like kind of what you said with the here, for sure, the proof is in the pudding, you know, because if uh, how it plays itself out is how it is, you know, you, I, you don't understand a move. If you've just understood it intellectually, you understand it. If you could do it, if you could do it with resistance, if you could do it repeatedly, if you can feel it when it's coming, if you could see it when somebody else is pulling it off. So it's really concretized everything for me. But at the same time, it's such a, uh, it's a sport that is very intellectually engaging and stimulating too, because it has so many distinctions, so many chains of movement, so much, like people have said, it's like chess, but it's body, you know, fully embodied. Uh, anyways, I love it. I'm surprised that I love it, but I do. I recommend people try it, I guess, if they haven't before and they feel like it could be interesting to them. Do you do do it or have you done it before? Yeah, yeah, I've been doing it for about, uh, I'd say a year, a little over a year. Has and it been for you? 
Yeah. I mean, it's, it's been exactly the same experience. I, I, I did a lot of Muay Thai before. And I, so I've enjoyed combat sports for a while. So I felt that sense of embodiment already, but jujitsu just kind of takes it to another level. One, you don't get, well, you do get banged up occasionally, but not the same as if you're like sparring striking wise, you know, where you're out for longer. Um, but it's that combination of being very cerebral in a sense, because there's so many wrinkles and folds and moves and, and thinking, as you said, it's like human chess, you're thinking several steps ahead, but there's obviously, there's also this element of like presence and flow and embodiment. And you're trying to go from the former to the latter, but you're always mm -hmm. reaching into the former, because as you say, there's basically an infinite number of, of moves and positions. And so you're, you're trying to build your library there, but you're trying to deploy the library without thinking about it. And then of course, there's the element of courage to show up every day. There's the element of humility when you get choked out 10 times in a row and just keep like wanting to go back. Um, there's the, there's something I think that our, our society has lost, you know, in the, in Greek times, at least my understanding is that, you know, wrestling and physical fitness was more elevated in the culture. Um, and we've just really lost that in most places today, you know, that young, young boys don't really wrestle in school or high school, you know, there's sports, but even them are being kind of demoted to the ascendancy of, of academic pursuits and, getting in there and wrestling around with another guy and feeling the exhaustion, feeling the strength, feeling the kind of primal awakening that that inspires feels really right. Right. It feels, Oh yeah. I, I was missing that sense. And as you said, like it's, it's, I think we would all agree. It's kind of, it, how can it not influence your thinking on things and your philosophies? Because it was kind of a big piece that might've been missing. And now to feel that, you know, Primal awakening may not be the right framing, but you know what I mean? Um, mm -hmm. It feels good. It feels good to leave that environment and then feel like you've done, you've exerted yourself. You've kind of represented yourself in a way you've, you're participating in a, in a journey that's meaningful to you. You've developed camaraderie with the other people that are doing the same, all that and more just very much enriches your life. And I think this is why there's so much renewed interest in it. You know, that's another, again, we talked about religion, but jujitsu ju specifically is another one where there seems mm -hmm. to be a kind of a groundswell happening because people give it a try and it ticks so many of those boxes. And it's like, well, why don't I pursue this? This seems like a worthwhile thing to pursue. This seems like it's a character building enterprise. And, you know, if you're, if you're rejecting all this stuff that we've been discussing, and I think part of that rejection necessarily has to be taking more responsibility for yourself in so many of the, these domains, whether it's educating yourself or whether it's uh, making yourself resilient enough to be an individual person and to take more responsibility for yourself and your family, you know, all those different reasons why responsibility is coming more under the individual's domain. If for no other reason, they just don't trust delegating responsibility to all those other institutions we've been alluding to. Being more physically capable is an, a, an obvious element of that. You know, being more formidable in that domain is is just makes perfect sense if one is trying to take more responsibility. So, mm -hmm. I uh, I've I've been loving uh, the journey, and I, I I I suspect I'll continue it for a long time to come. And man, do I have respect for black belts, and they've been doing it for ten or fifteen years because you can only imagine how many times they've been humbled in there and heard and pushed themselves and to, to get to that stage is no small feat. Yeah. I think that's a big part of it too, because when you go and you see that someone's got uh, you know, whatever belt it is, whether it's black or 
something else, you know, once you get started, how much work they put into it. And that it's sort of inspiring because when you're just, let's say like I was before a disembodied academic intellect, basically everybody measured up just on that metric, you know, like how many books have you read or something, but here that somebody has gone regularly challenged themselves, humbled themselves, as you say, push themselves, develop themselves. Then something else I like, it just crossed my mind as you were mentioning when we were talking about um, the sort of the seeking the absolute and its elusiveness or its openness, you know, like not putting bricks at the end of the universe. Jujitsu seems to me something like that, because even people who are black belts, it's just the beginning of another infinite process of discovery and development, mm-hmm. you know, and they all seem to recognize that it, you never master it. It's a, there's, there is a kind of absolute to it, which is that you're trying to perfect this deceptively, you know, apparently simple art and a recognition also that you never, you'll never get there. Uh, you'll just gradually, you know, improve. And then another thing for me, that's very crucial. Uh, part of the camaraderie component in the best case scenario is that there's this chain of like the way you are for newer people and the way uh, people who are more advanced are to you. There's like a sense of transmission of everybody lifting everybody else up again in the best case scenario. I'm sure there are situations there's, where it's there's not some like dicks that. out there, but yeah, by and sure. large, jujitsu gym seem and martial arts gym generally seem to have that kind of ethos. Yeah. Like obviously whatever outliers or, you know, people who are just uh, brutalizers or something, but in most, like so often, and I always thought in, when I was in university, I had expected that there would be something similar between like graduates and undergraduates, you know, that the graduates would take the new, like a first year graduate student would take a fourth year undergraduate student and have a kind of mentorship. There's nothing like that. But in jujitsu, I find, you know, if I, if you're rolling with somebody who's more advanced than you, you can ask them, they'll help you. And then when you roll with somebody less advanced than you, vice versa. So it's, for me, it's been super positive in every respect, despite, you know, I broke my ribs in like the first month and stuff like that, but it doesn't really matter. Cause that also teaches you, teaches you something, you know, you right. are, you're not immortal. You're not invincible. You have to learn how to fall and how to block and how to do these things. And um, yeah, it's been good. I'm really curious to know, because as I say, I don't know for you, for me, it was a totally unexpected thing that I got so into it. Like I wouldn't have predicted. I didn't expect. I didn't watch UFC or MMA. I didn't know what a gi was or what no gi was. I had nothing to go by. I literally just posted on Twitter. I asked my followers, my friends, what martial art would you start, you know, if you're turning 40, because I turned 40 this, this year. And most people said jujitsu, Brazilian jujitsu. So I went, that was it, nothing. Mm-hmm. But it's like really so fun and so fascinating. And uh, the fact that it is cerebral at all is also weird. Why you wouldn't, I would never have expected a martial art to be cerebral. Maybe it's self-evident to other people that it is. So it's just been good. What can I say? I'm glad I discovered it and thankful to the people who recommended it. Yeah, well, like I said a bit earlier, and I, you know, I don't mean to be uh, exclusionary and you can learn things from everybody and all the caveats, but I just, I, I'm more drawn to the philosophers and the thinkers that have embodied what, you know, what they're saying. And again, like if you're going to be any sort of philosopher worth your salt, there's probably going to be areas where you're confronting the status quo as you did in your life, as Peterson did in his. And I just feel like if you're, let's call it chaos generally, if you're going to put yourself in that position where you're confronting that, I think you need to embody not only intellectual formidability, but physical formidability. I mean, it just, they, they seem to go, they've always gone hand in hand for me. So when I first learned that Plato was like a jacked wrestler, and I think his name means broad back, I was like, 
Yeah, I like that. Like I'll pay more attention to to his stuff now. And when I see the opposite, when I see kind of the the feeble and capable people who are you know espousing these big virtues and 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 thoughts and pursuit of truth, I mean, I hate to say it, but it kind of takes a little bit away from it for me. Not that I can't learn anything from them, but it it, it is a bit of a, a detrimental attribute. And the last thing I'll say, and then I'll let you go, is um, I think one of the reasons why people like yourself and and many more people are being drawn to it these days is because there's no lying there. Like it's just pure truth and it's embodied truth and it's competitive truth, but it's, it's purely that. And as we've been discussing this whole conversation, I mean, we've been capitulating truth in its various forms, let's say, or at least attempting to. And that is an area where you can show up in life once a week, four times a week, whatever, and you can experience truth. Um, and there's, you know, you can't hide anything, can't hide your cardio, can't hide your strength, can't mm -hmm. hide, hide your lack of focus, your lack of technique, commitment, all that kind of stuff. And there's just, I think that's an element, that's part of the intoxicating element where you're just like, oh, in a world that seems to be filled with lies and delusion and all that kind of stuff these days, it's nice to show up in a place of truth and to just bask in the truth, basically, basically and have the truth choke you out from time to time. But, you know, and, and, all the, the the connections, the relationships, the camaraderie that's get gets built there, I think emanates from that. It's like everyone there is is humble because they are humbled by the truth on a daily basis. They are humbled by their own truth, their own insufficiency, et cetera. And um we've certainly found my wife my wife and I uh do jujitsu together that they've, you know, the the gym has become our primary social nexus, basically, because the the relationships are so genuine. Because when you interact with those people, there's no facade, there's no lying, there's no putting on any airs about who you are and what you are, and you're not even wearing much clothes, right? Or you're all wearing the same clothes. And so there's really nothing to distinguish or sep separate you or that you can uh, they can fake. It's all just as real as it gets right there in the moment. And that seems to be a great basis to form relationships and to to work on yourself and your character. So I'm I'm a huge advocate of uh, of people pursuing that practice. Nice. Yeah. Great, great points. Uh, <laughs> you made me think like flexibility is an issue that I'm working on and it's definitely, you know, you can tell somebody you're flexible or tell them whatever you want. Right. Because with your words, you can lie, but you're right. When you're on the mats and you're folded over or you're trying to do one move or another and you can't, that's the truth and you're facing it and you have to deal with it. And, uh, you're right. There's no lying about that there. Um, I think that's I why you're so before, but you're right. I think that's why you're so inspired to watch those videos and, and think about it outside of it too, because you're like, I don't want to be folded over that way again. And there's no way for me to stop being folded over unless I figure out how not to be right. I, there's no way yeah. of squirming, you know, intellectually or convince or persuading yeah. my way out of it. Um, well, Michael, this has been a great conversation. I very much appreciate the time. I know we're a little bit over. I apologize for that, but got excited talking yeah. about jujitsu. Um, I'd love to do this again sometime, but, before, you know, until then, would you like to uh, remind everyone again of, of your school or direct them anywhere you want to direct them? Sure. So my main social media is Twitter, M underscore Millerman. I post there all the time. I have a YouTube channel where I put out a lot of free videos on political philosophy, Strauss, Heidegger, Plato, Nietzsche, and so on. And then my school where I sell courses, but I also have a free introduction to philosophy is millermanschool.com. So if people find uh, this interesting, I strongly recommend they take a look. Awesome. Well, thanks again for the time today and keep up uh, the great work. I'm enjoying a lot of the, the YouTube videos you're putting out. And again, like we were saying, I mean, there, there's a lot of content out there today, but 
I think we're almost in a place where there can't be too much because there's so many things that need to be considered and capitulated. And every event that happens around the world needs a variety of perspectives for us to try to figure out what ours should be. And you seem to be facilitating that process. So thank you very much for that. And uh, look forward to chatting again in the future. Thanks. Thanks.